You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So on last week's episode of the Paracast, we were talking about one of those UFO disclosure petitions, that coming, of course, from none other than Steve Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group, who's been a guest on the Paracast, prior to Chris O'Brien's tenure, which we expect will be permanent as the co-host of the show. But that didn't fare too well. He got, what, 12,000 <laughs> signees. Well. And the White House had the third assistant flunky bureaucrat respond saying, now there are no spaceships, and goodbye. Nice effort. So he's trying again. What's the story, Chris? Well, I think he's getting a little bit more creative this time, Gene. He's kind of drilling in and zeroing in on any information, I guess, that would be tied into what was called the Rockefeller Initiative, which is back in the mid-90s. Lawrence Rockefeller made some behind-the-scenes inquiries, met with Hillary Clinton and uh, I think Bill Clinton as well. And tried to jumpstart a disclosure process, which never really went anywhere. He did fund a rather controversial effort, which um, started out as a briefing, basically a briefing document written by Don Berliner and Antonio Huneas, which uh, was co-opted and kind of taken over by Stephen Greer, who then used it for his own purposes. This whole thing was funded by Lawrence Rockefeller and We do know that Rockefeller did make some very extensive behind-the-scenes inquiries into disclosure and the extent of government knowledge of the UFO phenomenon. So I think it's it's a good idea for Bassett to kind of zero in on a particular aspect of the disclosure efforts that have happened in the past, and this would be a very good first step. I I support this. I you know I wish him all the luck because he's going to need it. So clarify here, he wants them to tell us what they know about Lawrence Rockefeller's efforts. Yes, in other words, there's a petition out there to fully disclose what happened as a result of the Rockefeller Initiative. Yeah. So the question, of course, is they can either admit that it exists, but then they're not constrained to give us an honest appraisal of the results. Or just say, well, of course not. people are inclined to reach theories, and this person attempted to explore something that we find no evidence for. Goodbye. Good luck. I think Bassett's approach by targeting his, his effort to a specific set of circumstances and, and a topic like the Rockefeller Initiative. I think this is a, it makes sense strategically and, uh, and tactically in this effort. And I think he's, he's just going to become more and more of a thorn in their side. And he's going to zero in on, you know, I think the elements of the, disclo- the potential disclosure process that have the potential of bearing, you know, the most fruit quickly. And I think this is very smart on his part to do this. And I, I do support it. And I wish him all the luck that he possibly could use because he's going to need it. Well, the question is here, did he poison the pool with his first effort, with the 12,000 signatures? Because now he needs 25,000 in order to even be acknowledged, I guess, by the White House, right? Right. Yeah, there is a ratcheting up process here. I think he should have probably done this one first and then waited you know, to do the big blanket sort of general uh, petition, I think, should have been done later. I think he would have had a much better chance of getting the required signatures for a broader appeal to the White House. But again, I mean, all this, as as you probably suspect, and, and you know I, I feel, this is all just, I think it's just a lot of posturing. It's a lot of grandstanding. It's forcing the White House to make these very disingenuous statements <laughs> that say, we don't know anything about any of this stuff. And basically, they could just stonewall us 
you know, from now until uh, three administrations down the road, and we're not going to get any closer. I think by drilling down on specific aspects of the historical record of a disclosure effort, I think I think he has more of a chance of of possibly getting them to slip up and, and release something. But I again, I'm not holding my breath. Well, that's the question: slip up. And you think worrying about the state of the economy, worrying about Obama's chances for reelection in 2012, the least item on their <laughs> list of concerns yeah. will be trying to answer questions about some UFO disclosure effort of some years back. Now, you knew Lawrence Rockefeller, didn't you? I did. I had the distinct uh, honor and pleasure of spending one-on-one -on -one with him an entire weekend with just him and him and I. And there's not too many people, I think, in the field that can actually say that. Generally, when you meet the man, it's uh, within a group context what have you. I just happened to luck out and be introduced to him, and I must have sparked some sort of interest in him because he spent the entire afternoon and evening with me and invited me back to spend the following day at a mutual friend's house. Actually, my neighbor, uh, Hannah Strong, uh, was the one that introduced me to him. When I arrived at Hannah's house, after she told me to drop everything I was doing and get, get, get my research together and get over there, I had no idea why she was saying this quite out of character for uh, John Mack was leaving her house and I thought I blew it I had taken too much time because Mack was leaving and I walked inside and there's there's Lawrence just sitting there smiling so um, I, I had a great time I, I quizzed him up one side down the other he was extremely open very magnanimous um, seemed genuinely interested motivated excited by the paranormal and ufology and after death uh, studies NDEs um, we we Spoke for many hours on a whole variety of topics. Of course, the one that was closest and dearest to his heart was the whole crop circle uh, phenomenon. And uh, he did gift me with uh, Michael Glickman's book, Corn Circles, which I cherish today. I think it's just a super classic, important work. It's very basic. It's very simple. It sort of lines up and delineates out the, the growing pattern of complexity within the crop circle phenomenon. In other words, how they became more and more complex when the first additions to you know, the simple circle occurred in 1986 and then following that progression. I, I just value this book uh, tremendously, and I think there's amazing clues in there. But the bottom line is Lawrence was, seemed as confused about the um, extent of government knowledge into the UFO subject as, as we are. Sure, he's, he was an insider, kind of a billionaire guy who knows a lot of people, obviously. But I really did get a genuine feeling of of wonder and and questioning exactly to what extent the government does hold all these secrets as people like Bassett and Greer uh, have contended. And uh, I think it's really important for the record uh, to come out on Lawrence's uh, involvement. Antonio Huneas wrote a very good record in, uh, in the Open Minds magazine last year about Rockefeller's involvement in ufology, which I do recommend people look up and read. But um, I, again, getting back to Bassett, I think this is a really smart move on his part, and I wish him all the luck. Right. Now, we've had our differences with Stephen Bassett, I think maybe because he tends to overlook the crazies in the UFO field, and maybe some of his viewpoints are expressed a little too vigorously, a little bit too dogmatically. But we'll have to see what happens. I mean, if this brings about any realization that creates the climate for more serious research, it's got to be a plus. <laughs> Not if you're talking about the White House in an election year. I'm sorry, this is a third rail toxic subject that will not be addressed. Yeah, 
I agree with you there. But it would, would be nice if some response came. We're going to navigate from disclosure and petitions to UFOs in wartime. We've got a guy named Mac Maloney coming next. Tell us about this book. I'm, I really like this book, Gene. I think it's a great uh, companion to uh, other books that have been written uh, in the past about uh, UFOs and in regards to, to the military. It's chock full of really interesting uh, sighting reports going all the way back uh, to Alexander's uh, alleged encounters in two occasions, which I didn't know. I, we all have heard about the Flying Shields. Um, encounter supposedly, but there was another encounter as well, which he uh, he shows in his book. He borrows heavily from um, other writers. Um, obviously, Jacques Vallée, who we've had on the show, wrote the wonderful book uh, with Chris Aubeck called "Wonders in the Sky." But um, he also leans on "Strange Company," which is a very very interesting book written by a guy named Keith Chester, which I do also recommend. It has quite a bit of material in there on Foo Fighters. I think that's the best book to read about the Foo Fighter phenomenon. So we're going to have some fun today. This book is really exciting. Uh, I learned a lot from it. Some of the uh, cases that I kind of remembered reading about but forgotten about, they're all kind of tied together in a nice, uh, complete package here. And we're going to have some fun talking with Mac. The book is UFOs in Wartime. The guest, Mac Maloney, coming up next on The Paracast. So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I'd already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Nick Wadino with Midas Resources. If you have an IRA or 401k, did you know you can turn that nest egg into a physical gold and silver nest egg? Do you know what kind of specific precious metals are allowed by law to be in retirement accounts? Did you know that you can take physical delivery of these precious metals? Would you like to know more? It's a fact. Stocks and mutual funds have been a wild ride, and many people's retirement funds have taken large hits. If you put $100,000 in gold in January of 2009, it would be worth over $200,000 today. If you put $100,000 in silver, then it would be worth over $300,000 today. As bailouts for banks and the seemingly endless printing of money continues worldwide, the value of the dollar could decline further, in turn possibly pushing gold and silver much, much higher. Protect what you work so hard for. Call me, Nick Wadina, 1-800-686-2237, extension 343, and learn what your options are. Again, that's 1-800-686-2237, extension 343. Once again, 1-800-686-2237, extension 343. From the shattered Rust Belt come the Lost Vegas. Now also available in digital format at Amazon and iTunes worldwide. Don't come calling when you all start falling down. 
Life Before the Collapse by the Lost Vegas on 180-gram vinyl and mastered especially for vinyl by legendary audio engineer Steve Hall. This guy, why don't want me to this guy? Life Before the Collapse by the Lost Vegas. The Lost Vegas. Now available at Amazon.com. And iTunes. Did you know that gold and silver contain healing properties? It's true. Since the beginning of mankind's history, gold and silver have not only been used as real money, but also for healing our minds and bodies. UtopiaSilver.com is your leading source for colloidal silver and colloidal gold, offering supplement protocols that can heal and enhance your health. Protocols for boosting the immune system, insomnia, yeast infections, herpes, and countering the effects of vaccinations and radiation poisoning. And now Utopia UtopiaSilver.com encourages the use of real money with this buy one, get one free real money special. For details and your colloidal silver and colloidal gold supplements, call 888-213-4338 and ask about 50% off for first-time customers. That's 888-213-4338 or visit UtopiaSilver.com, UtopiaSilver.com, fighting for liberty and healing one American at a time. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you'd like to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Or check us out at iTunes. The subject on the table on the Paracast with Gene and Chris is UFOs in wartime. Our guest is Mac Maloney, whom we welcome to the show. Mac, how did you get introduced to doing a book about UFOs? Well, it all started about three years ago. Um, I was at lunch with my editor at Penguin Books, and I've been writing for about 20 years full-time, but up till now, all of the books that I've done have been fiction, military fiction, and a, a couple science fiction books. You mean something so, like a Tom Clancy kind of approach? It was right, exactly, in the Tom Clancy genre. Tom Clancy is like my godfather, if you know what I mean, my literary godfather. So I understand. I do know Tom Clancy slightly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, well, he, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here right now. He, he really opened the door for a lot of people to write the kind of military fiction that I've been writing for years. So he's my hero. You were writing military fiction and science fiction, and now you approach a factual book. So the right. question is, how did you transition? We were really just kicking around ideas, and I had told my editor that, you know, I'm always doing research on military weapons and military history and so on, but I've always had this interest in UFOs, and I'd read some um, articles about the Foo Fighters, and it just occurred to me that it seemed like a lot of UFO sightings took place uh, during wartime, and it was just an idea that just came to me, and he and I spoke about it, and he says, you know, really kind of look into that, see if there's something, if there's enough to do a book on it, and um, I did look into it, and and it turned out that, that there was. So, as I said, that was about three years ago. Probably took about two years from beginning to end to research and then to write the book, and um, that's coming out on December 6th. Now, that's a good point to mention here. This isn't something that you just threw together. You really did your research. You said you were interested in UFOs before then. Had you read the literature on the subject? Was it casual interest, something 
that started when you were a child? What? Yeah, it started when I was a child. I, I was always a big fan of science fiction. And, you know, in my mind, science fiction and UFOs were close cousins, let's say. I've never seen a UFO, but my older brother, who was a lifer in the Air Force, um, saw one while he was uh, um, assigned to uh, an air base down in Charleston, South Carolina. My wife saw one before we were married. I know people who have seen them. I've never seen one, but I've always had an interest in them, uh, which I think a lot of a lot of people do. So I was just in a good position to be able to sit down and write a book about them. Okay, so the conventional wisdom has it from some people that we didn't see UFOs until 1947 when Kenneth Arnold saw nine disc-shaped or crescent-shaped objects over Mount Rainier in the state of Washington. But, of course, there were sightings in World War II, but that wasn't where they began. So what was your starting point? They go way back, you know, to to the Bible uh, and really throughout history. I mean, you know, as you say, Arnold, he just coined the term in 1947, flying saucers. Well, but, it, it was kind of coined by the press, but right, I'll, I'll exactly. go for that, sure. Right, you're right. He said they looked like saucers skipping across uh, a lake or something, and that turned into flying saucers. And that, that became like the catchphrase, and all of a sudden you had this uh, media storm having to do with flying saucers. But as you say, they were seen, they just didn't have that name in, in World War II, in World War One, in between the wars, all the way back to, uh, there's, there's a story in the book about Constantine, the first who was uh, about to have a major battle for uh, control of the Roman Empire, and his um, he saw what people think was a UFO the night before the battle, and for some reason he interpreted that as being that if, if you tell your warriors to put crosses on their shields, you will win this battle. And um, that's what he did. He won the battle, and that's the reason Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. So in a way, you could say that because of a UFO, uh, the Christian religion, you know, uh, flourished. Let me interrupt quickly and, and mention to our audience that the particular sighting event, Mac, that you're referring to, which is a very intriguing, not well-known sighting event uh, in history, was of, a, of like a glowing or flaming cross in the sky. And, and it was that image of the cross that was then suggested to be put on the shields, which uh, then you know uh, dovetails into your story. But uh, right. I think it's interesting that we, we should have an unusually shaped aerial object that then uh, becomes the, the iconic symbol that we are all more than too familiar with. Yeah, very interesting story from back in, that, was, that happened in uh, 312 AD. Right, now of course you mentioned the Bible. You didn't look at Ezekiel's wheels as anything that you might want to include in this, or because it wasn't during quote-unquote wartime? Well, it wasn't during wartime, and, and you know, I think that people have seen that story enough. I really kind of tried to go for stories that, you know, might not have been uh, put out there as, as much, you know, uh, before. Some of the stories we came across were, were stories that no one's really heard before. So, right, we, we just kind of didn't go with the Ezekiel's Will story. I would like to uh, have you go through the two events that Alexander, the famous Greek conqueror, uh, in his army's experience, there is one story that's fairly well-known in ufology, but there's a second story that you include in your book that I find very fascinating. Why don't you give our listeners a, a good sense of those two events? Well, Alexander at, at the time was, you know, on, on, the, on the verge of conquering the known world. He was um, at a, in the third, this is the third century B.C. He was uh, about to cross a river and um, fought a river when, with his army, his army included lots of men and, and horses and also war elephants. And he was about to go across this river when these two 
strange aircraft uh, appeared in the sky and uh, started uh, spitting out flames from their uh, from their rims and doing all this kind of stuff and it panicked the horses and the water elephants uh, to the point where they did not cross the river so uh, lots of people apparently uh, witnessed this and it, it I'm sure uh, gave him pause uh, then later on he was there's a famous story about the siege of Tyre in uh, which is in now present-day Lebanon, the people there who were resisting him uh, built a city out in out in the harbor. He surrounded it, and he was he was trying to um, conquer the city of Tyre, which uh, people had um, built out in this harbor. And he was he was constructing causeways to allow his troops to uh, attack the city. Uh, as they were about to do that, when they finally did this massive construction project, these flying objects uh, showed up again, and um, a couple of them fired on the walls of the city, knocking down the walls. And uh, allowed him to Alexander to take over the city. A very strategic uh, victory for him. Interesting story. Well, wow, that's a detail that I wasn't aware of. That these mm-hmm. uh, objects actually aided in the uh, right, right. bombardment of the city. That's that's a pretty interesting wrinkle. Right. So basically, the UFOs were, in that particular sense, participating in the wartime efforts back then. Right, right. Once again, it, it, the first story, they seemed to have been wanting to hold him back. The second story, they came to his aid. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's another puzzle of the big UFO puzzle. And maybe they don't have a prime directive there when it comes to interfering with human history. That could raise all sorts of cans of worms, and we're going to want to ask oh, you. Oh, boy. Where that takes us, oh yeah, the book is called UFOs in Wartime. The author is Mac Maloney. A reminder, neighbors, that we have a unique way for you to participate in the show to ask questions of our guests. When we can schedule them far enough in advance, we will post a forum topic or thread in the question bank. That's located in the Paracast Community Forums. Go to forum.theparacast.com. Once again, that's forum.theparacast.com. It takes just a moment to join up, and after you join up, then you can participate. And when we can give you time to ask those questions, we'll post the topic in the Paracast community forums. I'm Gene Steinberg. He's Chris O'Brien. You're in the Paracast. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are... The GCN Radio Network. Hey folks, in today's fast-paced work environment, getting everyone in the same room for a meeting can be challenging, especially when they work in different locations. And that's why I use GoToMeeting with HD Faces by Citrix. It is amazing. You can collaborate online by sharing your presentation. While seeing colleagues face-to-face in high definition, they can hide their blemishes. Video quality is so clear and natural, it's like being in the same room. And all you need is an internet connection with a webcam. It's that easy. So here's what I can do. For example, on the Paracast, which I host with my friend Chris O'Brien, we live in different locations. We need to share something, a document or something like that. All I have to do is call him up with GoToMeeting, and I say, Chris, take a look at this, and he said he's ready to go. You can try GoToMeeting with HD Faces free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, enter the promo code PODCAST, use the promo code PODCAST. Local Army-Navy surplus stores are hard to find these days, but not military-issue supplies. They're right here online at MainMilitary.com. That's right, just like the state, M-A-I-N-E, Military.com. We have everything for true, total preparedness. MainMilitary.com is not a typical website. It has much more than your old surplus store. 
quality military issue survival gear like canteens, mess kits, utensils, gas masks, filters, and chemical suits, magnesium fire starting tools, strike anywhere, waterproof, and storm matches, first aid kits, splints, tourniquets, parachute 550 cord, military manuals, sandbags by the bail, and a huge Molly assortment of vests and pouches for every need. Call 207-989-6783, 207-989-6783, or visit MainMilitary.com. That's M-A-I-N-E Military.com, the main name in military supply. Survival of the fittest. In any and all situations, survival is your number one priority. That requires being tough and thinking smart. And the folks at Freeze Dry Guy are going to help you do just that. They have the long-range patrol ration entrees, what they call the Brick Pack. When you're in survival mode, it is absolutely the best item for your survival pack or bug-out bag. You can go farther, faster, and carry more food with the LRP cold weather ration entrees. Not only do these long-lasting, durable entrees help sustain you or your family through the harshest environment or situation, they are by far the most delicious of their kind. No contest. With a variety of tasty entrees, you can't beat the LRP Brick Packs. Let Freeze Dry Guy help you in your survival situations. Go to freezedryguy.com. That's freezedryguy.com. Or call 866-404-3663. That's 866-404-FOOD. Discover a natural way to experience cleaner, healthier indoor air without expensive filters and high-priced machines. Discover what healthcare professionals have known for decades. Salt ionizes and purifies indoor air. That's why you need to visit SilverSkyImports.com. SilverSkyImports.com offers a wide assortment of Himalayan crystal salt lamps, handcrafted from salt crystals that are millions of years old, contain healthy ions that eliminate odor, reduce bacteria, and can even help allergy and asthma sufferers, which means you and your family will breathe better, sleep sounder, and have more energy. These salt lamps are available in stunning, natural colors and shapes to accent any home or office, are environmentally friendly, and best of all, they're affordable. And don't forget, SilverSkyImports.com also carries gourmet and bath salts. Order today at SilverSkyImports.com or call 800-494-1369. That's 800-494-1369. Breathe easier, feel better, live healthier at SilverSkyImports.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? The topic on discussion is UFOs in wartime, going back hundreds or thousands of years with Mac Maloney, with Gene and Chris on the Paracast. So we were exploring Alexander's efforts in wartime and the apparent efforts by whatever was piloting the UFOs to influence our war. As I said, maybe the aliens or whatever they are don't have a prime directive. Do you have any evidence in your book of other cases involving not just something in the sky, but something that seems to be a participant? Uh, Interesting question. And the answer is Other than, no, not a direct participant, but we have lots of stories in the book about uh, people, uh, well, something, someone, observing the human human race at war. I mean, the the bulk of the stories in the book uh, seem to point out that there is, uh, whenever we go to war, whether it's back in, you know, B.C. or right up into the present, 
there are a large number of UFO sightings of things just watching us, looking at us, observing us, watching us kill each other. Well, Mac, you do have one really interesting story from the Vietnam War that features, an, I think, an eight-foot helmeted giant right. that seemed to be somewhat alien in appearance that happened to kill a threatening uh, Viet Cong, or I think, or, or some sort of North Vietnamese uh, soldier so that a, a GI could clam- clamor aboard a, a U.S. helicopter and be rescued. That, I know I'm jumping ahead in our timeline a little bit here, right. but there are those rare accounts where you do seem to have some sort of interference mm-hmm. on uh, right. one side or another. Right. That is one of the exceptions. And, 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 and basically what that story was was um, uh, the Vietnam War was – the way they fought the Vietnam War, I'm sure everyone knows now, there were no front lines. It was a helicopter war. Uh, the Army would send in dozens, even hundreds of helicopters full of troops. They would land in the middle of enemy territory, fight the enemy, and try to kill more of them than they killed of us. Not really a good way to run a war, but, you know, that's another subject. Uh, on, this, um, on this one day, in, it was in 1966, this uh, gentleman was part of one of these um, airborne assaults. They landed in a field and immediately got into a firefight with the uh, Viet Cong. And there was so much uh, ordnance going back and forth that it lit the the dry grass of the field on fire. He got out of his helicopter, and his crew chief, or his sergeant said, told him that the helicopter in back of them were was having uh, mechanical problems. In fact, their engine was on fire. So he told, he ordered this gentleman to uh, take a fire extinguisher and go back and help put out the fire in the in the helicopter. Uh, he did this, but he left his rifle behind on, on his helicopter and ran to help the second helicopter. By the time he got there, the people in the helicopter had, had already solved the problem, and they started waving him back. Well, at this point, he's in the middle of a battle, and he's in the middle of a large grass fire, and he gets disoriented. And he uh, finds himself face-to-face with a, a Viet Cong soldier or a North Vietnamese soldier, and he's about to be shot. And what happened next was he saw the uh, a, a giant. Is that's the only way to describe this person? He was probably he was about eight feet tall. He was um, wearing some kind of a uniform, including a helmet that covered most of his face. Uh, this uh, being killed, the North Vietnamese soldier saved the American soldier's life. The American soldier finally found his helicopter, ran back to it, uh, took off, and when they took off. Uh, he saw the dead enemy soldier, but there was no sign of the of the giant that had saved his life. Very, very unusual story. From where Vietnam. where did you get the documentation on this? Um, I mean, this is this is really good stuff. And I'm wondering uh, about the evidence train on this. Well, you know, uh, I, what I did was uh, a lot of these were found on the net, and um, if my uh, editor said if you can find two sources to, for a story, let's go with it. The idea here is too is that. You know, I'm not exactly a UFO researcher. I'm more of a reporter, and I just wanted to lay out, you know, a whole different string of stories to kind of make the point that UFOs do show up. Uh, it seems like they show up more frequently when we are at war. And um, the Vietnam War itself was kind of a crazy war. I mean, let's face it, there was a lot of drug use uh, during it. It was a, a war that, as I said, had no front lines, no real victory in sight. You did your 365 days in country, and you just prayed that you could get out, and you and you made it through, however you could make it through. So the stories from the Vietnam War, uh, I'll be honest with you, are a little offbeat. Now, did you ever encounter a what has now become uh, among 
serious UFO researchers, quite a famous story that was first, I think, uh, touted by a researcher named Bill English back in the late 80s about a B-52 crew that were found mutilated but sitting in their seats with their seatbelts on in a, a crash plane that that seemed to have been set down into the jungle. There was no pattern of broken trees like the plane had, had glided in. It was more like it was literally sat right down into the jungle. And, of course, the fantastic claim by English that I think it was seven crew members were found, like the cattle mutilation cases, mutilated but in still sitting in their in their seats aboard this B-52. Have you, did you ever encounter that particular story? Uh, no, I didn't. I'm, I'm hearing it for the first time. I'm, I'm sitting here with my jaw agape. Um, I, I never yeah, that's, that uh, it, believe it or not, this was a story that was touted uh, for, for some time, and I've heard other people refer to it. I think it all goes back to the original English, Bill English account. But I was just curious because this is one of those like uh, too strange, possibly to be true type stories that comes from a fairly, at the time, a fairly reputable source. I think the story's been pretty much discounted since then. But, but again, this is another Vietnam era story. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, though. Let's let's go back to to our timeline. I love the way you have your book. It's it's kind of similar to Jacques Vallée and Chris Aubeck's book, Wonders in the Sky, where they just start, you know, from the historical record and then just work our way forward. And uh, you have a lot of interesting stories, but there seems to be kind of a, a bit of a hole in your research uh, during the Middle Ages. Uh, what? There are a few accounts that you give in there, and I'd, I'd like you to uh, tell our audience about some of the more uh, celebrated accounts. There's a couple of really good ones in there. The one that 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 really kind of was of interest to me was that, and I didn't know this before, was that um, when the when the plague hit Europe, uh, Western Europe, in in the 1300s, that um, you know a lot of people, you know, uh, and it's become accepted now that it was caused by uh, bacteria carried by fleas that and the fleas were carried by rats, but there were a lot of people back then who apparently saw uh, things like stra- uh, flying objects uh, flying around, um, leaving uh, vapor in its wake, uh, people becoming sick from this vapor, and um, um, and and that maybe this was an alternate cause or an, another explanation for for the plague. But the the odd thing was was that. Along with these stories about the strange vapor, um, people reported seeing uh, figures dressed in black hoods and robes and using uh, with sickles and, and unexplainably killing livestock. And, and they were almost like medieval men in black. And, and today we know them as the Grim Reapers. So there was a lot of strange things going on back then. And um, I, I had never heard that before. That was just something I came upon in, in my research. And, I, and one thing I wanted to say was... These these stories, you know, we did pick and choose the stories we were going to use from medieval times because the the, the core of the book we wanted to start uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, and uh, we just wanted to kind of give everyone a taste of some things that had happened before that. But the the book really kicks off in uh, 1909 with the uh, with the uh, scare ships. I like that term scare ships. Uh, we just had Jeff Danilik on the show, and we talked about the great airships, which were ten years prior to that. But uh, why don't you give us some examples of the scare ship sightings? Well, the scare ships is that the chapter on the scare ships. It's one of my favorites because I had known a little bit about it, but when I kind of uh, started researching it, it just seemed to get stranger and stranger. Uh, what happened was in in 1909, um, in in spring of that year, 
um, a, a policeman in Peterborough, England, uh, heard a strange sound. It was about four in the morning. He was walking a beat, I guess you could say, and he looked up and he saw this object go over him. It was huge. Neighbors, we want you to check out our newly updated forums. Go to forum.theparacast.com. That's forum.theparacast.com. A new, snazzier look, better integration with your favorite social networks. Check it out. We have to break this up and speak to you about it on the other side of the show here. With Gene and Chris, you're in the Paracast. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hey, neighbors, we have one more thing to talk about, and that's more merchandise at the official Paracast store. We have hats, we have jackets, we even have a flip video camcorder customized with the Paracast logo at the official Paracast store. It's all now available at the official Paracast store, store store.theparacast.com. We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today, complete with two black Berkey elements for only $231, and the Berkey Guy will ship your order free of charge. With the purchase of a Berkey Light, the Berkey Guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only $39.99. That's over 30% off the retail price. Call the Berkey Guy at 1 886 3653. That's 1 886 3653. Or order online at goberkey.com. That's goberkey.com today. Ready for cold and flu season? Now's the time to get ready and save during the pre-winter sale at HerbalHealer.com. Stock up on powerful, natural flu fighters like olive leaf extract, elderberry power, and grapefruit seed liquid. Don't forget your vitamin D3 this winter. Right now, HerbalHealer.com has 120 soft gels, 1,000 IUs on sale for only $9. And remember, HerbalHealer.com offers eFoods Global products, delicious, premium, storable foods that contain no MSG, no trans fats, no GMO, and have a 25-year shelf life. Click the eFoods link on HerbalHealer.com and try eFood storable meals for free. Bookmark HerbalHealer.com, then experience live chat, correspondence courses, and sign up for our free newsletter. As always, new customers get a free 128-page catalog with your order. Log on and hit the pre-winter specials at HerbalHealer.com. Healing the world with nature, one person at a time. Since 1988. Solar power. Solar power. Hand crank power. Hand crank power. Radio power. Radio power. The goods you want, the good deals you need to power up your survival are at 21stCenturyGoods.com. 
In our solar department, you'll find solar generator kits, solar lanterns, flashlights, radios, and solar cell phone and laptop chargers. 21stCenturyGoods.com is your hand crank headquarters for everything from generators to flashlights to emergency, weather, and shortwave radios by Grundig and Cato. Big brand names and big deals like this. Get a free solar flashlight with every order over $75, but hurry, offer ends soon. Go to 21stCenturyGoods.com, spelled the number 2, the number 1, S-T-CenturyGoods.com. That's 21stCenturyGoods.com, or call 866-999-8422. 21stCenturyGoods.com. Power up your survival. Your survival. This is Paul Bannister. I'm the author of Tabloid Man, The Baffling Chair of Death. You're in the Paracast. And now I'm on the show because the Queen herself asked me to do it. She knows, well, she told me the Paracast is the gold standard of paranormal broadcasting. Listen and be spooked. Gene, Chris, and the Paracast, we have Mac Maloney. The book is called UFOs in Wartime, and we're taking it through the years, incredible cases. So the UFO, Mac, passed overhead. What happened next? So he saw this object pass over his head. It was about 300 feet long. It was moving very swiftly. It was about 1,000 feet above him, and it was in the shape of a Zeppelin. Uh, Germans, and, and at the time, only the Germans, Germans, of course, invented the Zeppelins, and they had civilian Zeppelins, but they didn't have uh, military uh, Zeppelins at the time. This policeman saw this object. He reported it. It made the newspaper. Uh, nothing happened right away, but about a month and a half later, all of a sudden, people all over England start seeing these objects. And they look like Zeppelins, but they're not Zeppelins for several reasons. First of all, they were clocked at going over 200 miles an hour. Even today, the best blimps we have can't make it over 60 miles an hour. They were seen flying against the wind. They were seen simultaneously all over England, indicating that there were more than just one. They were seen with large searchlights glowing from beneath them and shining on the ground. Suddenly, hundreds of people are seeing these things, and people go, what could these things possibly be? Uh, there was a, a newspaper that uh, clocked one. They, were, they had a reporter in one town who saw it, and he started a, a, a clock, and then one of his associates in another town saw it show up 20 minutes later, and, and that's how they figured out they were going more than 200 miles an hour. Yet it was impossible at that time for a German Zeppelin to make the 700-mile round trip it would take to go from Germany to England and back at night. So they weren't Zeppelins. They weren't Zeppelins. No one ever figured out what they were. You know, um, it's interesting when you say this, Mac, how in our previous week's episode, I brought up the fact that UFO sightings over the years, and certainly maybe not so much in Renaissance times or before that, but more recent times, they seem to have a technology that's only a few steps ahead of ours. Right. Exactly. Which is very curious. Uh, that, this is what we found out, uh, you know, in the research. It seems like, and, and who knows what the explanation could be, but it seems like in the case of the scare ships and then in the case of the ghost flyers of Sweden in 1933-34, and then again the ghost rockets in Sweden in 1946, it seems in those cases we are seeing a technology that is just slightly ahead of its time. Not slightly, but ahead of its time for some reason. And what the explanation for that is, I don't know, but 
there's definitely, in those three instances, a good case to be made for it, whatever that case might be. Precursor element, I think, is really important. Of course, Jacques Vallée and others have uh, really made a note of it and attempted to really analyze the, the implications of this. But going back to your previous accounts of Alexander, Constantine, other events that occurred much further back in time, not only do we have interference or taking of sides by these objects and the supposed pilots, but we have technology that is way ahead of the time, which doesn't conform to this particular more modern aspect where UFOs tend to be couched just slightly ahead of their time. I think that's an interesting subject for someone out there to, to tackle and really analyze, but, but continue. Well, you know, with the another uh, side uh, story to the scare ships was, as this scare ship mania was going on in 1909, and World War One was just five years away, and it, it had been proven just about, you know, that that it was impossible for these things to be zeppelins, yet they look like zeppelins. There was an instance where a gentleman saw one of the scare ships over his uh, house. Uh, at the height of the uh, craze, let's say, and in, at night, and he happened to live in a, in a part of England that he was on a cliff. And the next day he went out and he found this strange object, which was, he described it as a long metal bow with a soccer ball shaped thing stuck onto it. He had no idea what it was. He got a hold of the local Coast Guard. They came up and they looked at the object and the local police looked at it, had no idea what it was. They told him to please hang on to it until someone from the British military could look at it. So this is what he did, and uh, he hid it in his barn, as it turned out. Several days later, the uh, British military came, and they took it. And they said it was some kind of a targeting device used by ships at sea. What it was doing on top of this cliff, no one ever figured out. But right around the same time, uh, one of this gentleman's servants, house servants, was leaving the house, and she saw these two men, strange men, on the cliff, and they were kind of looking in the same area uh, where he had found this object. And then... They were looking in his bond, and she described them as men wearing black. And it just and then as soon as she confronted them, they left. She left, and um, they kind of uh, scared her away. From that point on, there were other people who would say that they would run into these mysterious characters dressed in black, uh, who would show up at the sites of where scare ships had been seen shortly before. So in an odd way, it was almost like the first Men in Black incident happening during the scare ship craze of 1909. Very interesting. Uh, we also had a flurry of sightings in New Zealand that same year of similar described objects. Where did this term scare ships come up with? I love that. I think that's uh, <laughs> very interesting. I, I hadn't heard that before. Well, it was. I think it was was created by the media back then. You know, the British media is um, uh, there's there's always been. Uh, and, and and it's the same today. There's there's always been lots and lots of newspapers in England, and and they were even tabloids back then. And I think it was just uh, a word created by someone in the British media, and it stuck. You know, I wanted to ask you here in terms of sourcing. You said the publisher insisted you have two sources for every story. Now, obviously, in something like this, you're going online, you're checking newspaper morgue stuff like that. Did you have a chance to talk to anybody about recent cases? Uh, no, no. I didn't. I, I had conversations with uh, Richard Haynes and, and Jerry Clark and um, and Keith Chester, who wrote the book on Foo Fighters called Strange Company. Um, it, that was just more in, for background and guidance, though I, I went to their books a lot for, for research. And the book actually ends at the end of the first Gulf War. It just seemed to be the place to end it. And, uh, you know, whether we'll continue on someday from that, I don't know. But... Um, 
Uh, I did talk to those guys a lot, uh, but it was more for like background research and, and really guidance on on how to do a book like this because they were experts at it, and I was, you know, admittedly kind of new to the field. Did you find cases that you thought had promise, but on further discovery they were found to be wanting, maybe bogus? You know, I probably did. I, I can't remember, you know, any any specific cases right now. Um, it really was a case of, of going through as much literature as I could put my hands on and still staying with the kind of chronological way that the that the book is laid out. Um, so I can – I'm going to say no. It, it, almost everything that we really concentrated on wound up in the book, to tell you the truth. So when you decide to focus on a case – you did this with the help of these experienced researchers, and certainly Jerry Clark is a longtime friend of mine and a friend of the show. They were pointing you in the direction of the cases that had the most significance and the ones worth following up on. Yes, right, exactly, and and especially the ones that were in you know the books that they had written, and and I also talked to those guys because, like I say, as I said before, I'm kind of new to the to the game, and I I didn't want to say anything. That was wrong, if you know what I mean. Wrong in quotes. Just wanted to create a book that, you know, would be entertaining, and and at the same time would point out that, you know, this is really strange that UFOs show up a lot while we're at war with each other. And 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 here are the I think there's 70 different uh, episodes in it, and and you know just read them from beginning to end and and then draw your own conclusions. My conclusion is that there's something very unusual going on here. What it is, I would love to know. I don't know, but here's the evidence that something very strange is going on here. So you're not making an effort here to say, okay, this proves that E.T. is here. It is. No. This is stuff that is really weird, and we ought to find out what's going on. Exactly. That's, you know, you, you put it exactly. That's exactly how we set out to, to do the book. I, I don't know what they are. I would love to know what they are. I think we'd all love to know exactly what they are. Um, you know, are they extraterrestrial? We don't know. You know, are they time travelers? Are they from another dimension? Are they from inner space? Are they from some place that we can't conceive of? I don't know. But if you read all the stories in the book, I think you have to come to the conclusion that something is there, something is happening, and maybe someday soon. I asked Jerry Clark this. I asked everyone this at, at the end of the book. I put the question to them, when do you think the UFO puzzle is going to be solved? And Jerry gave what I thought was the best answer and also the most optimistic answer. He said within the next 50 years, the scientific community will finally take <laughs> UFOs. Maybe you've heard this before. Take oh, yeah. UFOs seriously and, and they'll start uh, you know, researching this and try to look for the answer. And, and, and he was – I hope he's off on his timeline. I would like it to happen you know, sooner than that. Well, I uh, guess but, if you are under 30 or 40, that makes sense. You'll live to see it. Right. If not, you hope that we expand the life cycle of human beings to accommodate that. Now they have a record number of people over 90. There might be hope. Right. We <laughs> have <laughs> Mac Maloney. That's because Chris is 400 years old, didn't want to tell you. Oh, you know, he boy. has those nighttime sojourns with the oh, yeah. red substance. Mac Maloney is author of UFOs in Wartime. With Gene and Chris, you're in the Paracast. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. 
Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you own an Apple iPhone and love to listen to your favorite programs on GCN, I've got good news for you. I'm proud to announce that GCN has a brand new iPhone app available for our dedicated listeners at GCNlive.com. Listen to your favorite hard-hitting GCN programs live or on demand right on your iPhone. And the best part? The GCN iPhone app can be yours absolutely free. Download the iPhone app today by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. We the people grow cotton, weave fabric, engrave ink, embed strips and fibers to protect from counterfeit and carting to a private bank, having it lent back at interest, forcing taxes to service debt. This capitalism, or was Jefferson correct when stating a central bank issuing the public currency is a greater menace to the liberties of the people than a standing army? Ted Anderson, I'm placing a free silver dollar in a book that explains our monetary system. Call for your copy, 800-686-2237. It's time to understand the system. Call 800-686-2237. That's 800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. We begin another hour of exploring UFOs in wartime with Mac Maloney, someone new to the UFO field but not new to doing research, especially into military matters. With Gene and Chris, you're in the Paracast. Let me ask you just a parenthetical question here. There have also been a number of reports of UFOs over nuclear installations. Did you get a chance to look into those too? Yes. As soon as nuclear power became a reality, UFOs started showing up over nuclear power uh, first processing plants and then uh, ICBM uh, facilities. Once again, it, it really kind of gives you this idea that Someone, something is looking in on us, watching us, knowing our every move. And they're very, very interested in things that have to do with maybe our own self-destruction. I think it's pretty well known that in the 60s and the 70s, uh, as soon as the U.S. Air Force opened up ICBM bases in the mid middle part of the U.S., the United States, UFOs started showing up over these um, over these bases. There, there have been entire books written about this subject. Did Once you again, happen just, to get in touch with Robert Hastings? I never. I talked to him through, just email. He, he and I emailed each other back and forth when I bought his book, but I never talked to him. I want someday. I really want to talk to him because you know, obviously, he's the guy. He's the expert on this. Yeah, we um, can make that happen. Yeah, yes. I would love to talk to him. He's a friend I mean, of the show, participates in our forums, Robert Hastings. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, the book that he did is UFOs and Nukes. And I would also suggest, Mac, that you may want to check the archives of the Paracast because we've had Robert on two or three times to talk about mm-hmm. the subject. And he's, might, he's building a house in the San Luis Valley as we speak. Well, he's the guy. He's the man yeah, uh, he who knows is. all about this stuff, and he's done a tremendous amount of research. Well, we're getting uh, ahead of ourselves a little bit here because a, a real sizable chunk of your book is on the Foo Fighter phenomenon, which, of course, uh, Keith Chester did uh, did a great job in Strange Company, detailing out uh, just amazing – I had no idea that there were so many sightings of these very enigmatic objects. But I want to go back – to that time period, that that really interesting time period between the two world wars. And one case that you bring out that what totally blew me away, I had no idea that this case existed, involves the Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen, who, of course, was the greatest ace of World War One, shot down 80 Allied planes. But according to this particular account from the uh, World News Daily that you 
cite in your book, he actually shot down a UFO in 1917, which was news to me. Why don't you give us a little insight on that particular incident? Because this is a really rare case. Right. Well, um, as you say, the Red Baron, he was the number one fighter ace of the German Air Force in World War One. He's mostly famous for the Red Baron's Flying surf Circus, but this happened about a year before the Flying Circus was formed. Spring of 1917, he was on combat patrol. His wingman's name was Peter Warzik, and they were flying over uh, Belgium, I believe it was, looking for Allied airplanes. And they came upon, it was a, it was a clear day, bright blue sky. And they came upon this uh, silvery disc-like object. They had no idea what it was. It was about 100 feet in diameter, very bright in the sky. And Warzik's story was that they, um, you know, it, it, it scared the heck out of them at first. The U.S. had just entered the war. The only thing they could think of was this was some kind of a new, you know, U.S. airplane, a reconnaissance uh, aircraft. They didn't know. So... Uh, von Richthofen just opened up on it, uh, fired on it, uh, shot it down. They saw it go into crash into the woods. They saw two people, two occupants uh, run from it. They returned to base, and they were told not to mention it again. And Wasser didn't mention it until the late 40s when all of a sudden all these stories that we were talking about previously about flying saucers started coming out in the media. And he realized that's what we saw way back when. So he never really talk, told anyone about it except... Uh, people in his family, and then he did do this interview. I think it was shortly before he died. He went on to fight in World War II and became an airline pilot, but he just didn't tell very many people this story until he gave this interview. So it was a good way to kind of start off the modern part of the book. I wonder if that was one of the Red Baron's 80 kills. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Yeah, That's a good 79 question. Allied planes and one UFO. <laughs> I just think about that hit record from the 60s. Snoopy the versus Red the Red Baron. Remember that? Right. Oh, yeah, of course. I, I could even sing it to you, Gene, but I won't. I'm hoping you don't. <laughs> I'm really praying that you don't. Okay, I won't. All right. Let's continue with the Foo Fighters. How about the ghost ships? Uh, we've, we've got a whole wave of activity that occurred in the 30s in Sweden. Right, that, the uh, ghost the planes up there. I mean, uh, to me, that's really important. Let's, uh, let's hit a couple of those uh, examples before we, we move into World War II. Very good. Let's predate World War II. And this is good, too, to mention because so many people think either 1947 or World War II signaled the beginning of the UFO mystery, and now we're focusing a lot on the fact that this is not quite what happened. That's right. In, in 1933, late 1933, the people who lived in this very uh, isolated region of Sweden called Vastabon uh, heard something flying over one night, and it was uh, a very noisy airplane. Um, it was going through, it, there's a lot of river valleys, uh, steep uh, mountains in this area, and it was it was winging its way through these river valleys, waking everybody up in this really kind of sparsely populated part of Sweden. No one knows what it was. Uh, the authorities were contacted. They looked into it. They didn't know. Um, they, they checked it and, and found out there was no Swedish military planes flying that night. There were no custom planes flying that night. Those are the only two only two, let's say, suspects who might have been causing all this racket. Now, back in 1933, you know, airplanes were still kind of in their infancy. You know, most airplanes were made of, of fabric. They weren't made of steel. Most of them were inefficient, and most of them couldn't fly for very long, you know, without some kind of maintenance, needing maintenance or refueling. And especially in this part of the world, seeing an airplane was a rare event. So 
this night uh, it happened, and then the next night it happened, and then the next night it happened. And, and suddenly more people are seeing this aircraft, and what they described it as is a, a large aircraft with eight um, engines on it. All right, Now, I don't think there's any planes. I couldn't find any airplanes that had eight engines on them, especially none back in 1933. But not only did they have eight engines on them, but they had a very um, unusual twin boom uh, tails, uh, almost like a P-38 fighter, and they had pontoons on them. And in this part of Sweden, there is no water unless it's uh, frozen. It's basically snow and tundra. So people st- all over this part of Sweden start seeing these things, and they're seeing them all over the country, like the scare ships, indicating that there was more than one of them. The Swedish military sent out planes to look for them, never found them. Six Swedish military planes crashed during the search. It lasted a, a couple months. Suddenly people start seeing them over Norway and Finland. No markings on the airplanes, no country insignia. Uh, no, no airplane existed that fit the description of these airplanes. Now, these airplanes used to do something very unusual. One thing they unusual about them was that they also had searchlights. Uh, hanging down the bottom, uh, out of their fuselage, shining on the ground below, just like the scare ships. And what they used to do is they would they would circle a town, or railroad stations, or mountains, and people would see them doing this. They were just constantly circling, shining their lights down on either the railroad station or the town or the mountain, and they would do this for hours. And the strange thing about it is. Back then, you couldn't fly an airplane for hours. You could only fly an airplane for a couple hours at most, and where it had to land and get refueled. Yet these things would be flying all night. They flew in all kinds of weather. They flew in blizzards. And another unusual thing is, is that they would, when people would see them circling these their towns, they would shut their engines off and glide, and then start their engines again. And I can tell you, I know a little bit about aviation. That's virtually impossible to do. Yet people saw them doing it. And um, this lasted for about four or five months, and then just as suddenly as they appeared, they disappeared. People theorized that maybe they were German weapons. Uh, the Nazis had just come into power in Germany. Germany's not that far away from Sweden. but And, and the theory was, was that the Germans had a, a, a top-secret aircraft carrier up in the Arctic Sea somewhere launching this aircraft. Well, that is not true because, number one, the Germans never had a working aircraft carrier. Number two, if they had some kind of battle cruiser that they could launch these airplanes from, it would be they'd be, have to be launching dozens of airplanes every night, night after night, retrieving them in the worst kind of weather. It'd be very hard to do that with us with an aircraft carrier these days. I'll tell you Plus, what we have, Mac Maloney. We're looking at UFOs in wartime with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> So here's what happened. I was placing an order online. The site went down. It just stopped responding. It took hours before it returned, but I had already placed the order with another company. If your site goes down, you could lose business. And if you have a business or personal site, you'll want to know it's easy to run and it will stay online. At iWeb, your site is hosted on one of the most reliable networks in the world. Check it out. iWeb.com. That's iWeb.com. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. 
Again, the Congressional Budget Office sounds the alarm, this time warns of Greek-style U.S. debt crises. You heard me right. The GAO is drawing a parallel between the U.S. economy, its debt, and the current Greek economic meltdown. With the debt-to-GDP chart climbing into unfamiliar territory, the growing budget deficit will rise to unsupportable levels. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. The Federal Debt and Risk of Financial Crises document the CBO has published is a must-read for every American, covering the risk of continued deficit spending coupled with an aging population and the rising interest rates spell economic disaster. It's imperative that you get a copy of this document and study it for yourself. Call me today at 800-686-2237, and I'll send you a free copy. Again, call 800-686-2237 and ask for your copy of the CBO document. Once again, you need to read this government report. Call 800-686-2237. Attention GCN listeners, do you have a Patriot on your Christmas list that's nearly impossible to shop for? How would you like the ability to get top-of-the-line, hard-to-find gifts at equally hard-to-beat prices without leaving the comfort of your home? Why fight the crowd? Simply log on to your computer for great gifts and deals for the -the off-the-grid enthusiast in your family. At offthegridchristmas.com, you'll find great prices on the most popular off-the-grid gifts available today. At offthegridchristmas.com, you'll find unbeatable deals on emergency backup power, herb and vegetable seeds, dehydrated foods, emergency evacuation packs, solar ovens, gun safes, and a host of truly unique stocking stuffers. In these hard times, why not give a gift that really counts, a gift that could truly make a difference? Go to offthegridchristmas.com and our Christmas video highlighting perfect gifts for the -the off-the-grid fans in your family. Unbeatable gear, unbeatable prices, no more searching. Offthegridchristmas.com, that's offthegridchristmas.com. As we age, we lose both strength and muscle mass. Undamaged whey protein from grass-fed cows is nature's most powerful food to gain back lost muscle. Virtually all whey protein powders or drinks have been damaged during processing or are high in sugar. This damaged whey causes a significant loss in the ability of the body to build new muscle proteins. The high sugar content will stop all the benefits of your growth hormone from causing muscle repair. By giving your body easily absorbed, undamaged whey, free of added sugar, you may be able to gain back lost muscle and strength. One World Whey is truly undamaged whey protein powder free of added sugar. Both young and elderly are reporting increases in muscle strength and size without any additional exercise. Go to OneWorldWay.com. That's OneWorldWhey.com to read or hear some impressive testimonies to this effect. Or call 888-988-3325. That's 888-988-3325. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you'd like to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Or check us out at iTunes. We have Mac Maloney. The subject is UFOs in wartime. And we're just hearing all sorts of cases. Lay another one on us. Okay, well, we can go into the Foo Fighters now. The Foo Fighters were what people called UFOs during World War II. Okay, now, did you look up the derivation of that term? How did it start to be called Foo Fighters? 
it was funny because towards the end of the war, I mean, they were they were known by many names during the war by the Allied intelligence people. They they used to call them just unidentified objects. They called them uh, misguided rockets, believe it or not. Most people thought on the Allied side thought that they were uh, German wonder weapons. Um, and and that that's kind of like the the punchline of the whole Foo Fighter phenomenon. But there was a one particular squadron, the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, that ran into more Foo Fighters um, than any other squadron, uh, Allied squadron in the war. And it was the pilots in that squadron that named it after there was a comic strip back then called um, where there was a character called Foo Fighter in it. Or he was a, he was a firefighter, and his fire truck was called the Foo Fighter, and that that name just kind of stuck. That's how they got the name Foo Fighters, but Foo Fighters was actually a term that came towards the end of the war. Let's look at a few cases here. Well, it really all started in um, early in the war, before the uh, American 8th Air Force even got over to England to join in the bombing of uh, Nazi Germany. British uh, bombers were reporting seeing these strange objects that would tail behind them during bombing runs. Sometimes actually come up and fly parallel to them. Sometimes come up and fly in front of them, almost like flying in formation. Now, a lot of these were described as glowing orbs, um, but others were described as um, just these huge, fantastic-looking aerial objects uh, that were with portholes and, 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 and lights seen behind the portholes. The uh, British pilot, uh, crews would come home. They would be debriefed. As soon as you land, the first thing you do after a bombing mission is you're debrief, debriefed by your intelligence people. They would start reporting these things. Now, the intelligence people didn't really know what to make of it. So basically, the excuse everyone came up with is these must be German weapons. We will put them in the report. But, you know, our number one priority here is winning the war, uh, bombing Germany into submission. And, and we really can't be, uh, you know, sidetracked by trying to figure out what these things are. So for a long time, what would happen is that the intelligence officers, they would make note of people seeing these objects, but it wouldn't be the prime um, subject matter of the intelligence report that would then go up the ladder. So as Keith Chester pointed out, where a lot of crews would report these things, a lot of crews didn't report them because they knew it was not going to go anywhere and they didn't want to um, be ridiculed, which would happen a lot if you if word get out that you saw one of these things. So where Keith you know, uncovered dozens of episodes in World War II where people saw Foo Fighters. You know, his contention is that there's probably hundreds and hundreds of sightings that just went unreported. So then when the American Air Force came over to England and joined the British into bombing uh, Germany, the, the Americans would bomb during the day and the British would bomb at night, American crews start seeing these strange things, and it, and it really continued throughout the entire war. This was not exclusively a European theater phenomenon. There were also cases, including the famous case at Leonard Stringfield. Uh, it changed his life. He went into a complete you know, research uh, program for the rest of his life, trying to, obviously, uh, he was the father of crash saucer research. But uh, there were quite a number of, of Pacific theater sightings as well. I just wanted to kind of remind everybody of that. That's right. That's right. And the Stringfield one was interesting because it was right after the war ended and he was on an airplane flying to Japan with the occupation forces. And he saw three, uh, you know, full fighters um, off the right wing of the aircraft. And at the same time they appeared, the aircraft developed engine trouble and was in the, almost in the process of crashing. And then the full fighters disappeared. The engines came back on the, and the plane landed 
safely, but from as you say, from from that single incident, that that changed his life, and he became you know a very famous UFO researcher. This opens up a whole kettle of fish here, ball of wax, uh, whatever <laughs> cliche you want to use. Which people like Joseph Farrell, um, David Childress, um, there's a number of researchers that have taken the original intelligence assessment, uh, intelligence agencies assessment of the Foo Fighter phenomenon. And they have suggested that perhaps some of these fur balls, as uh, they were also called uh, by the Germans, were actually some sort of uh, very terrestrial uh, German, you know, exotic technology. Where do you come down on that? How much work did you do in looking into the Brotherhood of the Bell, um, some of the uh, projects that were going on in Czechoslovakia, um, Victor Schauberger, the the... Um, the various types of, of, of designs that have come forth uh, in, in the years uh, after World War II that seem to suggest that the Germans did have an interest in circular craft, in exotic propulsion, vortex-type propulsion, in the case of the Schauberger vortex engines. Um, where do you come down on that? Do you think there's a possibility that some of these objects could have been of terrestrial manufacture and design? Or do you think that these are truly high-strange uh, events that that have no other explanation that could be terrestrial, you know, in nature. I don't believe they were a terrestrial design. I, I don't buy into that whole German super weapons theory, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, German pilots saw these things too, and they found out after the war that, uh, that, that they believed that they were Allied secret weapons. The Allies believed that they were German secret weapons. But when the war was over, uh, there was no huge manufacturing scientific research facility found anywhere in Germany that would have been able to produce these things. You know, where's the support mechanism for something of having these fantastic weapons? You would have to have, you know, hundreds, thousands of scientists. You'd have to have something on the on the order of the a creation of the A-bomb to make fantastic weapons that could go for uh, 4,000 miles an hour at the at the at the blink of an eye. There is no recorded instance where any of these Foo Fighters ever fired on Allied aircraft. If, if they were German super weapons, why aren't they shooting down all of yeah, our exactly. airplanes? Why aren't they emoliating all our troops on the ground? Why are they so passive? Okay, exactly. Uh, well, that that leads me to another question. In all your research that you did, did you ever find a single instance where Foo Fighters acted in any sort of hostile manner and perhaps uh, disabled or even brought down uh, any aircraft from any side in the war. No. There's not yeah, one single incident of, of Foo Fighters showing any kind of aggression. Uh, and, and once again, it, it, it comes to this fact. I, I believe, and I believe strongly, and, and I'm, I don't want to disparage the people who have done a lot of research into this, but in my mind, to say that these were Nazi superweapons and to, and to keep that idea alive is frankly keeping the idea of the Nazis alive. And I think that that is not a good thing to do. I think there's a more productive way to spend our time. Uh, in 1944, the Germans were so uh, deplete of, of resources, they were building the cockpits of their ME-262 jet fighters out of wood. Okay, this, is not the, this cannot be the same uh, you know, uh, military who is somewhere, somehow, in some secret mountain somewhere, building aerial machines that can go 4,000 miles an hour. They don't it have a Stargate sitting there at the Yucca Mountain or something. Right. We have Mac Maloney with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. 
America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockoids is available now. Read a simple chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockoids. A novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Iodine protection packs from HempUSA.org are now in stock for immediate delivery worldwide. Our iodine protection packs include micro plant powder, green life kelp, red palm oil, and our clear roll-on iodine that will feed the body the iodine it needs. All iodine protection packs are in stock, save you money, and ship for free in all 50 states. Visit HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. HempUSA.org has a revolutionary wonder food for detoxing the body and rebuilding the immune system. Microplant powder can help unclog arteries and soften heart valves while removing heavy metals, virus, fungus, bacteria, and parasites. Plus, it cleans and purifies the blood, lungs, stomach, and colon. Keep your body clean with Microplant powder. Visit us at HempUSA.org or call 908-691-2608 today. Introducing a Diabetes Breakthrough, an easy, natural, organic way to bring relief to diabetics. Introducing MDS Forte, a concentrated super strength extract formulated for those who are looking for relief. What can MDS Forte do for you? MDS Forte reduces glucose levels safely and effectively, reduces cholesterol and triglyceride levels, increases HDL or good cholesterol while reducing LDL or bad cholesterol. MDS Forte reduces A1C, improves eyesight and circulation to the limbs, and helps with weight loss. Is non-toxic, caffeine-free, 100% natural, 100% organic, and comes with a 100% money back guarantee waiting for the side effects disclaimers with mds forte there are none order a 25-day treatment of mds forte by calling 213-405-5355 213-405-5355 or visit bestbloodsupport.com that's bestbloodsupport.com for mds forte a diabetes breakthrough Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Don't forget, CrossbreedHolsters.com. That's the sound of your door being kicked in by an intruder with a single kick. That's the sound of the same door now protected by the Door Sentinel at MySafeDoor.com. Go to MySafeDoor.com right now and watch the amazing video. At MySafeDoor.com, you'll learn how to turn your home into a fortress with the Door Sentinel. 16 kicks later... 
and the Door Sentinel is still holding strong. MySafeDoor.com. That's MySafeDoor.com. This is Jerome Clark, author of UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. With Gene and Chris, we're talking to Mac Maloney about UFOs in wartime. And once again, you point out here that except for in the days of Alexander, the UFOs were not participants in our wars. They were the observers. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's the one key thing, that the, the one string that goes through almost everything we have in the book is that they're observing us. They're looking in on us. They're they're interested in, in us, especially when we're at war. There are there are a couple of episodes where it kind of deviate from that, but for the most part, and especially during World War II, there was no instance where they showed any kind of aggression at all. Uh, one thing that you mentioned in your book, Mac, and 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 this is, I think, a, a perfect time to bring this up. What did the Germans and Japanese uh, truly know about Foo Fighters? And you've come up with some very interesting stuff here about this Sonderboro. 13, uh, which was some sort of shadowy investigative unit that uh, the Luftwaffe set up. And they did a, a, an assessment of the situation. Some of the reports that they, you know, investigated are quite, quite interesting, including the, the flying whale, this 300-foot-long, 50-feet-in-diameter uh, object that a German pilot described as uh, having a, a very close encounter with. Why don't you give us a, a little sense of, of what the Germans were up to? Evidently, they seem to be, about, if not more puzzled than the Allies, at least as puzzled by this uh, new aerial phenomenon that was being reported by pilots. Right, that's true. I mean, there, there's not as much information on what the German side saw, but we do know that, well, according to um, Henry Durant, who is a French UFO writer, he's the one who wrote about this, that the Germans set up a, bureau, uh, a, a section called Sonder Bureau 13, as you said, and, and they looked into German pilots seeing Foo Fighters. And uh, one of them was uh, the story of um, a pilot. He was, he was being uh, transferred to Norway, and he felt that he was being transferred you know, out to the boondocks. He wasn't happy about it, but as it turns out, he, he arrives at this base way up in Norway called Benak. As soon as he gets there, they see an um, unidentified flying object over the field. They ask him to take off and go look for it. Uh, he did. He gets about uh, 10,000 feet above the base, and, and he sees what he described as a Luftwaffe, meaning flying whale in German. And uh, it was a huge streamline, 300 feet long, about 50 feet in diameter, uh, flying along horizontally. And he had it under observation for... Quite a while, and then all of a sudden, like a lot of these things do, you know, blink the eye and the thing is gone in a in a in a you know blazing burst of speed. Uh, he landed. He told uh, people what he saw. He told the superiors what he saw, and and they were sure what was going on was that he was just uh, reacting to the fact that he'd been transferred to this you know outpost out in the middle of nowhere, and um, you know they thought he had gone uh, slightly insane, and and the next day they transferred him out of there. There was another uh, story where Heinrich Himmler and Joseph Goebbels, who, who was the uh, propaganda chief of uh, Nazi Germany, were witnessing a uh, V-2 rocket launch, and uh, they were filming it. And the, the rocket went up, and as the rocket was going up, uh, they everyone there saw this like a, a spherical body uh, going around the rocket as it was um, 
as it was going up uh, into the sky. And Goebbels asked, you know, what is this? And uh, the German uh, scientists on the ground said, you know, we don't know. We think it's a, some kind of a British uh, secret weapon. There was another case in which a, uh, a German pilot in an ME-262, which was their uh, jet fighter, encountered, you know, a, a huge cylindrical object, once again, you know, it's, uh, 300 feet long. This thing had an antenna on it, seemed to be intelligently controlled. I'm sure there were many other stories, too. Now, the thing about the Sonderberg Bureau is that there's a chance that it that itself might not be true. Um, and, and I'm sure maybe a lot of people have heard this story, too. But Henry Grant, supposedly, when he wrote his book, The Black Book of Flying Sizes, he, he says that he invented this just to make sure that UFO writers, in, you know, who, who were writing books after this, his book came out in 1970, that they were checking their facts. Uh, so, you know, did it Interesting. exist? Interesting. I never knew that. Right. Did it exist? Did it not exist? Is this just him laying some kind of a trap for people like me not doing the research? Who knows? I, I don't know. I don't know. But it seems to me that if Allied pilots were seeing Foo Fighters, then German pilots must have been seeing them, too. And Japanese pilots must have been seeing them as well. So what about the Pacific Theater sightings? Um, I've heard of some actually very, actually almost terrifying there have been some close encounter cases, I think, from the Pacific Theater that are as impressive, if, if not even more so, than uh, some of the European uh, theater stories. Uh, why don't you give us a, a quick summary of some of that activity, then we'll go on to the post-war era when we have, again, a northern latitude, you know, a Sweden, Norway, Finland outbreak of, of a different kind of mysterious ghost rocket, as they called them at the time. Uh, but first, let's talk to Pacific and then move on. Right. Um, once again, you know, uh, tip of the cat hat to Keith Chester because he was the guy who really dug into the archives of, uh, of of the Army Air Force. Back then in World War II, the Army was the Air Force and also uh, the, the U.S. Navy um, aviation arms. Now, as he pointed out, the Navy has – where he was able to get into the archives of the um, – and, and see the reports of the Army Air Force, the Navy never really – released uh, a lot of this information. So there might be a treasure trove somewhere still waiting to be uncovered of sightings made by U.S. Navy pilots in, in the Pacific Theater during World War II of Foo Fighters. But, uh, you know, we were uh, uh, able to come across a few of them. The, the, the one that, that really struck me was uh, the case of the USS New York. It was a, a battleship that had uh, was in the Atlantic during uh, most of the war and then was transferred to the Pacific uh, towards the end of the war um, because they needed, you know, battleships were just you know, heavily gunned and they needed it for the uh, landings at Iwo Jima and the Okinawa. And it was sailing off in New Guinea when all of a sudden a uh, this object, uh, they started approaching on radar. It stopped right over the uh, battleship. The battleship was uh, being uh, escorted by two destroyers at the time. And this thing just hovered above the battleship, or I shouldn't really say hovered because the battleship was going about 14 knots, The this thing, a dish-shaped flying saucer-shaped object, paced the battleship for four hours. Four hours. Now, it could not have been a conventional aircraft because there's no airplane that can fly 14 knots. Okay, it can't be a balloon because it stayed right with it for all this time. Um the crews of the battleship and the two destroyers saw it. Uh, everybody saw it. At one point, they started shooting at it, and it had no effect, and it, and it finally uh, flew away. Um, 
that to me is an you amazing know they story. have you know they have film footage somewhere in yes, some archive right. of that right. they've got to they've got it was Stephen right. Bassett take notes right yep for sure you know where is it you know uh, I think there's lots and lots of information uh, written and film information film stuff that is uh, still to be uncovered about Foo Fighters in World War II. Okay, well, how about the ghost rockets? Let's move forward. We have this, this emerging uh, phenomenon, military intelligence, uh, the air forces of the world are scratching their heads, and then quickly on the heels of this, we have an outbreak of these strange rockets that uh, are flying around. The only rockets up to that point, really, was the V-1 buzz bomb and the V-2, which was totally taken over by the Soviets and, and Americans. That, that project, you, you had no manufacture of rockets, and then all of a sudden you have an outbreak of these very amazing sightings. Why don't you give us a quick thumbnail of the whole ghost rocket phenomenon? Well, the ghost rockets um, appeared in 1946, once again over Sweden, interestingly enough. And what they were was, um, and people saw them uh, starting in February of 1946 and right through that summer. And what people saw were literally rockets. They were long, thin some had wings, some didn't, uh, but you could see, you know, uh, flames, thrust coming out of the back of them. But but thousands of people saw these things, and, and hundreds of them were reported flying over Sweden and, and heading north into, you know, the, 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 the hinterlands of Sweden. It, it, uh, people, so many saw people saw them. There, there weren't that many events. There, there were dozens of events, uh, granted, but I don't think – really, there were hundreds, hundreds of, of, separate, them, yes. of separate yes. ghost rocket – Events, yes. not not sighting yes. reports. Hundreds really, of events, but we've got so much more to explore. We're talking to Mac Maloney, and this book is called UFOs in Wartime. With Gene and Chris, you're in the Paracast. Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs. Convert from so many formats, I can't even list them. Download now to see if Graphic Converter is good for you, like one and a half million other users. Guess what? You could save money when you buy Graphic Converter. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL to get a special price for Graphic Converter. Go to LemkeSoft.com. That's L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. LemkeSoft.com. L-E-M-K-E Soft.com. If you constantly feel run down and tired, your pH level might be low and your body could be full of toxins. If what you drink is not at a pH level of 8 or higher, you are inviting bacteria and acid to thrive in your body. But there is something you can do. Simply add 10 drops of AlkaVision Plasma pH drops to your water to help your body rid itself of acidic waste, increase oxygen, and raise your pH balance to optimum levels. AlkaVision Plasma pH drops combine a unique formula of the most alkaline minerals in the world. Alkalizing the water you 
you drink, ridding your body of acidic waste and toxins, and helping you regain energy and vibrant health. And studies show viruses, bacteria, and toxins cannot survive in an alkaline, high pH environment. Order your bottle of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops at AlkaVision.com. That's A-L-K-A-Vision.com. Or call 269-409-1776. 269-409-1776. Alkalize your body. Supercharge your health at AlkaVision.com today. What looks good under your Christmas tree and tastes even better? Big Berkey Water Filters. Yes, the gift of clean water. A gift that provides a great foundation for achieving good health in the lives of your loved ones. A Big Berkey Water Filter gives them protection from bacteria, heavy metals, chlorine, fluoride, pesticides and herbicides, VOCs and more. And best of all, a Big Berkey Water Filter is a gift that lasts for many years with no additional investment. And that saves time and money in filter replacements that other water filters require and are even powerful enough to purify treated, untreated, or even stagnant pond water. As always, all orders over $50 are shipped free, and GCN listeners get 5% off all ceramic filter systems. Order online at BigBerkeyWaterFilters.com, spelled Big, B-E-R-K-E-Y, WaterFilters.com, or call 877-99-BERKEY. That's 877-99-B-E-R-K-E-Y. Gift well this Christmas. Give a Big Berkey water filter. If you owe the IRS money you can't pay, then listen carefully, because you already know that the problem won't go away by itself. You can get help today from the leading tax expert in the country, Dan Pilla. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. The IRS isn't going to just forget about you. Right now, the IRS is hiring thousands of tax collectors to go after delinquent accounts just like yours. That's why you need to take action today, and I can help. I take a simple but proven approach to solving your tax debt problem. First, I stabilize collections so you don't have to worry about wage and bank levies. Next, I build a detailed plan to get your debt reduced to the fullest extent possible, sometimes even eliminated. Finally, I work with you every step of the way to get your problem solved once and for all. So call now for a free consultation. Call 1-800-346-6829. Dan Pilla will solve your tax problem guaranteed. He's helped thousands of people, and he can help you too. Call us today at 800-346-6829. That's 800-34-NO-TAX. This is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. So the question is, Mac Maloney, hundreds of cases, Chris yes. and Gene waiting for the answer on the Paracast. What say you? Well, um, well, what happened was the Swedish military was so concerned about this that they broke their uh, traditional neutrality and they secretly went to the British and asked them for some um, aircraft radar. Uh, the British sent them uh, radar. They set up these radar stations in Sweden. And sure enough, the ghost rockets start showing up on radar, and there were just just ghost rockets confirmed on radar. Two hundred examples of um, individual ghost rockets found on radar, and then you add that to the number of visual sightings. But what what happened then was the U.S. got involved, and they actually sent Jimmy Doolittle over to Sweden secretly. He was working for Shell Oil at the time, and his cover story was he was over in Sweden looking at oil refineries. But what he was really doing was consulting with the Swedish military and looking at all the information that they had got about these ghost rockets. And at that time, what they thought was happening was that the Russians had taken over Pinamunde, which was the Nazis' 
research uh, facility for V1 and V2 rockets. And, and they had theorized that the Russians had just kind of reconstituted that, be, that base. And what people were seeing were V1 rockets. But Right, but that, that's not what happened. those were. <laughs> right. Freedom Monday was like uh, non-operational. Yeah, it was a ghost town. You know, the, the, it did fall into Russian's hands. It, it was in, in what became East Germany. But what happened was it, it had been bombed heavily. Uh, the Germans had destroyed a lot of the equipment as they were retreating. So when the Russians got there, it was basically a ghost town. And anything that was left, they just packed up and shipped deeper into Russia. So they they determined pretty quickly that it wasn't Pinamunde. Uh, so, uh, and that's what uh, Doolittle eventually um, uh, briefed. President Truman about. So these 1946, all these uh, people are seeing these rockets, and finally a a Swedish military plane found one of them flying, found, you know, encountered one. And what that pilot reported was, as I said, 15 feet long, small wings in front, small tail section in the back. And even more bizarre was he reported that this thing seemed to be flying as if it had terrain guidance. And what that is, real quick, is that uh, terrain guidance first came into being with the F-111 fighter bomber of the U.S. in the 60s. And what it is is if you're flying along low, let's say you and you and you dial into your computer 500 feet in altitude, you're going to be flying at 500 feet. If you come to a mountain that's 1,000 feet high, the plane is automatically going to go up and over that mountain and keep that 500-foot buffer between you. So it's terrain-following technology, which is very complicated. We weren't able to do it until the 60s, and um, and that was in an airplane. Our cruise missiles today have it, but cruise missiles today really came about in the 80s. The point being um, then that the UFOs are, once again, showing technology just a little bit ahead of ours. Yeah, that's right. Um, they, they, there was an interview made in the 80s of someone who was a um, connected with the Swedish Defense Ministry, and his quote was, from all indications that he had seen, from all the descriptions he had seen, what people were seeing exactly, uh, he described as exactly what we know today as cruise missiles. But as he said, who was flying cruise missiles over Sweden in 1946? The, that's the question right there. I love it. Okay. By the way, we should tell our listeners that, as you know, we ask our listeners in the Paracast forums at forum.theparacast.com. To pose questions to our guests, we didn't have a lot of advance warning in getting this set up, so we don't have too many questions. But, Chris, you've assembled a couple. Yeah, it comes from just after the ghost rocket period. It's a question by W.W. Kirk, who's a fairly longtime member of the forums. And he gives us a quote, Mac. He says, uh, General Benjamin Chidlaw, former commanding general of the air, later Aerospace Defense Command, reportedly said in 1953, quote, we have stacks of reports of flying saucers. We take them seriously. When you consider we have lost many men and planes trying to intercept them. Now, are you familiar with this quote? I'm not sure exactly where W.W. came up with this. It does ring a bell to me. But uh, let's talk about uh, the post-war period and, and now what you know, George Filer, there's a number of people out there that claim that this is when the uh, U.S. started to get into an adversarial uh, relationship with these aerial objects. Uh, I, I don't recall seeing much about that. Of course, the Philip Mantel case, which is equivocal, comes to mind. But uh, why don't we uh, talk about that real quick? Uh, you, you know, this whole sort of 50s 
you know, fighters trying to intercept these objects. Um, and then, of course, soon on the heels of that, we have the interest in nuclear sites, as we touched on before. So what about this early 50s period? This is uh, a, a crucial time period from 48, let's say, uh, to 53. Um, what, uh, what does your research tell you? Well, um, the 50s were definitely, um, yeah, you could call the 50s the decade of the UFO because there were, it was just, you know, hundreds if not thousands of sightings uh, during the 50s. But we have to go back a little bit to uh, 1947, and that's when, uh, right after uh, Arnold first saw his flying objects and coined the term flying saucers, after that hit the media, people started seeing flying saucers all over the country. We had uh, Roswell. We had the Maury Island incident, um, and and so that the Air Force, you know, said thought, well, we really do have to look into this. And of course, they're always thinking from a national security point of view. And and what they're worried about is could these things be uh, Russian weapons? Is our security threatened here? So they gave the um, uh, uh, the mission to what was then called the Air Technical Intelligence Center um, uh, in Dayton, Ohio, to look into did UFOs exist? They weren't called UFOs at the time. but um, And so it took six months for the ATIC to uh, come to the conclusion. Now, the ATIC was made up of scientists and engineers, and they were really held in high regard in, in the Air Force. And their conclusion was that the phenomenon is not visionary or fictitious. They believed that flying saucers were real and that the Air Force should study them further. Now, this freaked everybody out, if I can use that term. This isn't what they expected to hear. But because the ATIC was so well regarded, the Air Force said, well, we better look into it. And that really was the beginning of, of uh, the, the Project Sign, which is the Air Grudging Force's... and Blue Book, yeah. Right, exactly. You know, it was the beginning of that. And and the people at ATIC looked into it, and, and they once again, they came back six months later and said, you know, this is something, you know, they're not hallucinating. People aren't hallucinating when they see well, this. Well, we, you know, our, our listeners, I think most people actually listening to the show are really up to speed. This is where people, okay. their knowledge really starts to, to drill in, but... Really, the question is, though, that there have been claims made by, uh, for instance, George Filer, who was in the Air Force during the time period. And uh, there seems to be a suggestion that there was an adversarial, you know, shoot, shoot, shoot on, uh, on site type scenario going on at some point during the 50s. And uh, the claim here, and going back to our question concerning General Chidlaw's comment that we've lost men in planes, um, this is like a whole new wrinkle in the whole, in the whole sort of passive watcher observer role of these objects, and we're actually starting, for all appearances, starting to get aggressive with them. What, what does your research tell you about that? About that aspect, the adversarial relationship that that began to flourish, allegedly during the fifties. Well, I think it is allegedly. I didn't come upon anything where, um, you know, there was any kind of, you know, warfare between UFOs and U.S. military uh, jets, uh, fighters. Uh, there were instances, the Mantel case is one, there are several instances where airplanes were lost, uh, airplanes disappeared while, um, you know, pursuing UFOs and things of that nature. Uh, but but uh, there was a shoot-down order, and, and I'm, I'm sure your audience probably knows this too, right after the UFO, uh, twin UFO sightings uh, in Washington, D.C. in the early 50s, Truman, President Truman gave the, the order which said to all U.S. fighter pilots that if you encounter a UFO, if you can't quote-unquote talk him down, then shoot him down. 
Um, and of course, that caused a great stir because when word of that leaked out, people were saying maybe we shouldn't be shooting at these things because they're uh, such fantastic technology. They're going to uh, send Gort on us. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but I didn't come upon any of this. Um, okay, so, so you don't think that we actually lost many planes and weapons, as General Chitla uh, sort of intimated? I'm not I, I sure think, where this quote comes from. It does ring a bell. Of course, I, I we also that, have other evidence as well that, that suggests that maybe some, some incidences happen. Obviously, these weren't part of the public record. I was just curious to know uh, how much, you know, if you really dug in that direction. And if you did, what you found. Because and I have another be- question, too. I have another kind of significant question here about okay. a couple of these cases. But first, got to tell you, if you have a comment or a question about the show, write us news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. We also have questions and answers in our forums, wide-ranging discussions on everything under the sun at forum.theparacast.com. That's forum.theparacast.com. Mark Maloney with us, UFOs in Wartimes, the book with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN. Great talk radio starts here. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. If you'd like to listen to GCN programs on the go, I have great news. GCN has created a Droid and iPhone application, and it's free. Just as easy as going to GCNlive.com, click on the banner, and download. Before you know it, you'll be listening to your favorite hard-hitting GCN shows, live or on demand, right on your Droid or iPhone, 24-7 and on the go. So download the Droid and iPhone app free by clicking on the banner at GCNlive.com. Thanks again for listening to GCNlive.com. Again, that's GCNlive.com. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. Have you ever wondered why banks, stockbrokers, and Investment advisors won't talk about gold IRAs. They've been available since 1986, yet the financial industry won't recognize the value of gold for your retirement. Gold has outperformed paper investments, yet no word about IRAs. If you would like to have gold for your retirement, call 800-686-2237. Don't get left behind by rising inflation and low returns. Call 800-686-2237. Secure your future and call 1-800-686-2237. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. We continue with Mac Maloney on the Paracast with Gene and Chris. The book is called UFOs in Wartime, about cases through the ages that occurred in synchronicity with war. Okay, you mentioned the Maury Island case, and it's a can of worms. A number of people feel that case was a hoax or of conventional design. And then with the Mantell case, some people suggest he was just following the planet Venus. He got fooled, he flew too high, and caused his own death. Any response? Well, with you know, the Maury Island case, I mean, you're right. It's a can of worms. It seems 50-50, whether it's a hoax or whether it actually happened. It seems to me that something happened there. I mean, just so many things. Um, well, losing it, two Air Force investigators on a, a right. plane crash, uh, leaving the site of the investigation. That's I mean, true. that, that That's fact true. alone makes it interesting. It, it makes it interesting, right. And, and um, 
there was just so many people involved. If it was some kind of a hoax, it just seems like there would be just too many moving parts to pull off a hoax like that. The FBI didn't believe that it wasn't a hoax. The FBI believed it was real, but then other people said, well, you know, if you look a little deeper, all it is was just some kind of a intelligence operation to discredit people seeing UFOs. So, I don't know. You know, it's, it, it, to me, it was just interesting uh, subject to put in the book. We devote probably about 10 pages to it. Uh, you know, and all these things, I just ask people, if, if you're interested in any episode that appears in the book, just, you know, go and look at the research and, and really make up your own minds. With the Mantel case, I don't believe that he was chasing Venus because, first of all, he was a pretty experienced pilot. He was the flight leader of four F-51s that day, and usually the flight leader is the most experienced guy. Whatever he was chasing, he was mesmerized by it, so much so that he went way beyond the safety limit of, um, you know, how high he could climb altitude-wise. He was beyond the capabilities of, of his uh, oxygen supply. His last words were, you know, it's gigantic and I'm, I'm getting closer to it. I can't believe that, and plus it was during the day. You know, I don't know if you can really see Venus during the day to the point that you would actually chase it. I think he saw something else. I, I think he saw something that he had no idea what it was, and, and he wanted to find out what it was, and, and he overstepped his bounds as far as you know the, his slight envelope to find out what it was, and, and tragically, he was killed. And the other key is here, is there any evidence that any of these wartime cases involve something that indicates a UFO might have fired back? Nothing during the 50s, no. Nothing during the 50s. Now, I, I will say something as, as an aside. What that is is that completely, you know, off the subject of UFOs, there were airplanes, U.S. airplanes being shot down by the Russians during the 50s. We created a whole fleet of spy planes, a lot of them were C-130 cargo planes, that would fly around the borders of Russia, sometimes crossing over the border, uh, with their listening gear pointed towards the middle of Russia to see if what the Russians were up to, where they were testing nuclear weapons or whatever, and they would send MiGs up against these planes and shoot down these planes. They were unarmed. So, this was an, an unknown, undeclared war between Russia and the United States, and a lot of pilots and a lot of planes were lost during this, as I say, undeclared war. Whether that somehow got mixed up with chasing UFOs or not, I don't know. Good point. Very interesting point. Another thing I wanted to, to mention about the Maury Island in that crucial time period, uh, June-July, in the Puget Sound area of Washington State, my father was uh, aboard a Coast Guard cutter and was serving in the uh, Coast Guard in Puget Sound during that time period. And he told me when I was a kid that they clocked, they had brand new radar units, and they clocked objects that appeared to be traveling in excess of 10,000 miles an hour, 10K. And some of these sightings, there was, I, I can't remember his exact wording, but something about them coming in and out of Puget Sound, not only flying around, but, but actually entering the water as well. I just wanted to mention that as an aside. Now, obviously, we have Roswell, right after that and we don't even want to uh, go into that can of worms we don't have enough time because we've got a lot of interesting material in your book to cover here and we've Unless also covered roswell to death <laughs> i don't believe roswell happened and i say that in the book i, I just oh, don't okay. think it you, happened you know again. what let's hear about this why do you feel that roswell never happened okay here's the can of worms folks Okay. I, well, once again, you, you kind of have to look at, at numbers, okay? And the numbers would yeah. be that, you know, first we have the story about, you know, the crash debris is found. And then if you see the crash debris in, in the photographs that were taken, 
I mean, a good case can be made that it was, you know, part of this kite, uh, this this spy balloon that the Air Force was a balloon train. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. And and sure, was there a cover up? Yes, there was a cover up, but it wasn't a cover up because a UFO crash. It was a cover up because they wanted to keep this spy balloon program uh, under wraps. And then it seemed to have taken a life of its own. When I was young and I would I would read UFO books, there was no mention of Roswell in any of these books, but it just yeah. kind of came back to life in the late 70s or early 80s. Like and Frankenstein's then all of a sudden, monster. Right, and, and, and now there's five UFOs were found, and alien bodies everywhere and so Multiple on and so forth. Multiple crash sites. Yeah, you cannot, you, you know, there's, there's just... And they were brought down by radar, Mac. Don't forget that. They were yeah. brought down by radar. There's just too many move as I say, too many moving parts for this to to be real. You know, once again, I don't want to disparage the people who have spent a lot of time researching this. Right. But just in the stuff that I read, I, I just don't. I I don't think it happened. Okay, there you go, Gene. Okay. Well, now we're going to see those letters in our forum saying, "What's he talking about?" I know a few people who have obviously <laughs> explored very extensively Roswell have been on the show. Also, the Aztec case. I assume the Aztec case in Aztec, New Mexico, you don't think that happened either? Yeah, I didn't look very deeply into that, but um, I probably shouldn't comment about that. I was like, <laughs> All right. Gene, you're bad. You're All a right. bad man. Mac is, you know, he's done a really good job. Mac, I, 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 you know, I've looked through the book uh, extensively, and you did. This is a really good resource for someone that's interested in, you know, a more objective way of looking at the history of the UFO phenomenon. And you're right. There does seem to be a correlation with hostilities amongst humans. You know, if you pattern and look at the waves of activity, they tend to occur right around the points where we're getting ready to go to war. And right then they kind of they, they ebb and flow a little bit through that period. But then there's a, a real increase as soon as we're done with conflict, and if you do a, a, a correlation between the waves of UFO sightings and when we're moving massive amounts of armed men around the planet, you find an interesting correlation. That's something that uh, I wanted to point out before we we move forward. We did talk briefly about the Vietnam War. There are a lot of interesting reports that you hear about, but you don't see good documentation of uh, concerning Vietnam. What about Vietnam? Uh, Korea is a, is a whole nother thing that. Uh, I don't think enough people have really looked into the amount of, of potential sightings in the, during the Korean War. Uh, are there any? Yes, there were. I mean, the Korean War was actually pivotal in, pivotal in this, and uh, uh, Richard Haynes is the guy who really brought this to light. You know, the, the Air Force had closed down all their UFO investigated units by the time uh, right before the Korean War started. And they just wanted to basically be out of the business of investigating UFOs. And the, the famous quote by uh, one general said, uh, after the ATIC re revised its, its findings and said that, you know, there really wasn't anything to UFOs, the famous quote is, uh, some general said, behind nearly every UFO report stands a crackpot, a religious crank, a publicity hound, or a malicious joke. Okay? And that was the Air Force's stated opinion on it. And they wanted to to be their last opinion on it, their last statement on it. But now, six months after that statement came out, Korea starts, and all of a sudden, what you have is lots of jet fighters flying over Korea. Korea is only about one-third the size of Texas. Uh, you have, not only do you have a lot of radar on the ground and on ships, but now you have radar on airplanes themselves and um, high-speed aircraft. So, so you have many 
human eyes seeing these things, but also electronic eyes. And they, and there were a number of instances in the book where uh, military pilots came upon huge uh, UFOs over Korea in the midst of battle. Uh, there were also several more um, instances where where UFOs were, would circle over the fleet, and and people would think that there were MIGs, uh, you know, setting up an attack, and yet yet these things would circle over uh, aircraft carriers for eight, nine, ten hours at a time. Uh, they would send planes up to get them, but they were always just a little bit beyond the visual range, always hiding in the clouds, on radar, but they were never seen. And what happened was, and Richard Haynes uh, told me this, and I agree with him. We'll have to explain what happened and what Richard Haynes told you in our next segment with Mac Maloney. UFOs and Wartimes, the book with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Hey, neighbors, we have one more thing to talk about, and that's more merchandise at the official Paracast store. We have hats, we have jackets, we even have a flip video camcorder customized with the Paracast logo at the official Paracast store. It's all now available at the official Paracast store, store store.theparacast.com. Making the right decisions is a challenge to investors. Are we going to see economic growth slide into a recession or at worst depression? Hi, Ted Anderson from Midas Resources. We all know when a company acts irresponsible Responsibly, divesting ourselves in a move towards safety is prudent. When the market becomes volatile, U.S. Treasuries are a safe haven. But what do you do when the U.S. government overextends itself and spends beyond its means? Many investors are turning toward gold as a common-sense alternative to traditional paper investments. Midas Resources has put together a powerful book titled 10 Reasons to Own Gold, discussing costs, benefits, risks, featuring full-color illustrations, weights, and measures. The book is free and can be yours by calling 800 686 Paper investments are dwarfed by gold's 6,000-year history. Discover how gold may be right for you and your IRA by calling 800-686-2237. Whether buying or it's time for you to sell, the book is free. Call 800-686-2237. Solar power. Solar power. Hand crank power. Hand crank power. Radio power. Radio power. The goods you want. The good deals you need to power up your survival are at 21stCenturyGoods.com. In our solar department, you'll find solar generator kits, solar lanterns, flashlights, radios, and solar cell phone and laptop chargers. 21stCenturyGoods.com is your hand-cranked headquarters for everything from generators to flashlights to emergency, weather, and shortwave radios by Grundig and Cato. Big brand names and big deals like this. Get a free solar flashlight with every order over $75. But hurry, offer ends soon. Go to 21stCenturyGoods.com, spelled the number two, the number one, stcenturygoods.com. That's 21stCenturyGoods.com, or call 866-999-8422. 21stCenturyGoods.com, power up your survival. 
We all know that Berkey Water Purification Systems are the most trusted name in water filtration. As an authorized Berkey dealer for over six years and serving thousands of satisfied customers, the Berkey Guy offers amazing specials for Berkey Water Filtration Systems. The Berkey Light Systems include a set of self-sterilizing and recleanable black purification elements that purify water by removing chlorine, pathogenic bacteria, cysts and parasites to non-detectable levels and remove harmful chemicals such as herbicides and pesticides. Order the Berkey Light System today complete with two black Berkey elements for only $231 and the Berkey guy will ship your order free of charge. With the purchase of a Berkey light, the Berkey guy is also offering a set of fluoride and arsenic filters for only $39.99. That's over 30% off the retail price. Call the Berkey guy at 1-877-886-3653. That's 1-877-886-3653 or order online at goberkey.com. That's goberkey.com today. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And if you'd like to catch up on past episodes, we have hundreds of shows for you to download direct from theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Or check us out at iTunes. As we move down the UFO highway here, UFOs in wartime, Mac Maloney, you were about to quote something from our friend Richard Haynes, please. What he told me was, and I agree with him, is that he believes that there were so many UFO incidents in Korea that that's what really compelled the the Air Force to reopen the investigation and to start Blue Book. You know, the, the Air Force refused to give any comment at all about UFO sightings in Korea, they, they would make up excuses for what pilots saw to fit the idea that, well, you know, if, if, if something is flying alongside a B-29 uh, for 10 minutes pacing it, well, we, we're going to have to call that a, a communist flare. If the Navy fighter saw a huge object flying at 800 miles an hour, we're going to have to call that a, an enemy balloon. They would make up these ludicrous you know, excuses for what their pilots were seeing because they couldn't say their pilots were cranks or crackpots. But he thinks, and I again, I agree with them, that behind the scenes they said, we better reopen this, and that's how Blue Book uh, came about. So Korea is really a pivotal point in this whole uh, UFO story. Any more you questions, have, by the way, Chris? Except for Vietnam. Which we'll get to later. We'll get to later, yeah. Here, let, let me just ask about the Roosevelt, because this, this would be a good place, Mac, to start talking about the FDR. All right, so we're moving from World War II into the 50s and later on. What other conflicts do we find large portions of UFO sightings in? Vietnam, of course. Vietnam, and, um, well, the, the, the interesting thing about the 50s is that that was the era of the Cold War. And, and as you were saying earlier, it's, it's not just that a lot of UFO sightings take place during war, but it seems like they are watching us as we're preparing for war. And a case could be made that the entire Cold War and the entire 50s was made up of us preparing to go to war with Russia. The story about the FDR, the USS Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is interesting. The aircraft carrier, it was an aircraft carrier. It was uh, commissioned right after World War II ended. It was one of the first aircraft carriers to have jet aircraft land on it. It was also one of the first uh, Navy aircraft carriers to have nuclear weapons on it. And for some reason, over the next 20 years or so, UFOs, there's really the only good word to describe it is it, they haunted the FDR. They would, there were 
at least six different uh, cases where UFOs showed up over the FDR. The first one was they were doing NATO exercises in um, in the North Sea in 1952. Someone took there was a, you had to be a photojournalist on the FDR at the time. He took a picture of a UFO going overhead. Uh, there were hundreds of ships taking. Uh, part in this uh, NATO exercise, and and hundreds of crewmen on these ships from various countries saw UFOs. UFOs were seen over England uh, air bases, the British air bases at the time, Danish air bases at the time, Swedish air bases at the time, and for some reason they all seemed to be keying in on the FDR. So then you flash forward a you know a few years, the FDR is had been refitted in Washington, was was going to its new home base in Florida, and it went around the bottom of. South America stopped in Rio de Janeiro for a, a goodwill visit. It's anchored there. Two F- UFOs show up. Lots of people on the uh, on the aircraft carrier saw them. Very vivid, very um, uh, dis- uh, described as being bright, circular, saucer shaped. Could see portholes in them, and then they disappeared. A few years later, uh, the FDI was in uh, Guantanamo Bay, the famous Gitmo. Uh, it was uh, anchored there. Uh, UFO showed up, hung over the. Uh, aircraft carrier for 10 minutes, people could see not only portholes, but they could see people looking out of the portholes at them. And then the UFO took off. The next day, the CIA came aboard the FDR and talked to everyone who had seen the UFO, and their excuse was they claimed they were on the aircraft carrier investigating illegal gambling. If you can imagine the CIA trying to investigate illegal gambling on a Navy ship, but that was just their excuse. They talked to crew members that saw it and then told everyone don't ever talk about this again. Flash forward to the early 60s. The FDR is now in the Mediterranean. A UFO is seen, uh, picked up on radar, heading right to it at, at high speed. They launch a couple F-4 Phantom fighters, which were like the new airplane at the time. They get to the intercept point. The UFO disappears. The fighters land back on the ship. Next thing you know, the UFO is right over the FDR, and it stays there uh, for a long time until it finally disappears. The captain of the ship told everyone who saw it, and everyone who saw it on radar in with their own eyes, just don't say anything about this again. The FDI then was decommissioned uh, later on, and when UFO investigators went back into their records, they found that any mention of UFOs were wiped clean. It's really an interesting case that you would have one ship that UFOs kind of keyed in on, and, and the only explanation is maybe is because it was the first Navy aircraft carrier to carry nuclear weapons. It shows again the obsession with UFOs on our nuclear testing. Chris? Yeah, good job researching that one. Then let's move into the late late 50s. Uh, the Gander incident, uh, very, very intriguing case. You do a good job of giving a, a nice little summary of that case. Why don't we talk about that particular encounter? Again, that's an amazing case. Um, what we have is a super constellation, uh, military version of a super constellation uh, airliner being flown by the Navy. They're flying uh, back from Europe with um, crews that, are, that are, have done their hitch, and now they're coming back to the U.S. They're flying along. They're, they're about an hour outside of uh, uh, Newfoundland when the crew sees lights below them. And the first thing they think of is that we're off course, we're actually over land, and we're looking down on a town or a village. But then they check their position, and they realize, no, they're still over the ocean. So as it turns out, there were a number of air crews on the airplane making the flight. So they, they brought all these pilots up into the cockpit, and they're all looking down on this these lights. Suddenly, a ring of lights comes up at them, and they realize this is an object that is speeding up at them at incredible speed. Uh, there's almost a collision. The pilot just barely is able to maneuver out of the way of this thing. And the next thing you know, there's this gigantic object 
flying off their left wing. Everybody saw it. Um, it stayed there for a little while, and then it took off at high speed. So everyone on the airplane is shaken. They finally land at, at Gander. There's uh, Air Force uh, intelligence people there to debrief them. They take everyone's statement, and once again, they tell everyone, don't say anything about this. The plane itself finally completes its flight, and it gets down to Pax River in Maryland. And the pilot, later on, is where, they're ta- where Navy intelligence people talk to them. Uh, later on, the pilot it, was uh, contacted by a U.S. government scientist who said, can I speak to you? And the Navy gave him permission to speak to the scientist. And the scientist basically wanted to know, you know, what happened, and the pilot told him. And then at the end of this interview, the scientist pulls out a portfolio of photographs, and they're all photographs of different kinds of UFOs. And he says, tell me what shape you saw. And in this portfolio, there was one photograph of exactly what the people on that airplane saw. And he said, that's it. That's what we saw. And then he demanded the scientists tell him, where did you get these photographs? And, and the scientists would not answer him, packed up the portfolio and left. And the pilot was, you know, he's a very experienced Navy pilot. And, and he was left with this impression, the government must know something about this because I just saw a whole pack of photographs that are in their possession. Let's remind our listeners, uh, Mac, uh, this event occurred in very early, I think February of 56, if I, if I remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're talking about an interesting time period uh, in the late, mid to late 50s where, where the UFO phenomenon kind of took on a, a different sort of veneer. Speaking of veneers and speaking of the Vietnam War, which is what we're going to get into next in terms of UFO sightings, you're listening to a discussion of the book UFOs in Wartime by Mac Maloney with Gene and Chris. You're in the Paracast. America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade. We are the GCN Radio Network. Graphic Converter is the image manipulation tool for the rest of us. It does not use any database. You get full control of all your files. Want to view the images of a folder? Drag it into Graphic Converter, and a powerful browser opens up to show your image files. You could use it for slideshows. You could use it to import images from digital cameras or from scanners. Need to do some image editing? You can do that, too, in Graphic Converter. Also, print catalogs. Convert from so many formats, I can't even list them. Download now to see if Graphic Converter is good for you, like one and a half million other users. Guess what? You could save money when you buy Graphic Converter. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL. Use the coupon code NIGHTOWL to get a special price for Graphic Converter. Go to LemkeSoft.com. That's L-E-M-K-E-Soft.com. LemkeSoft.com. L-E-M-K-E-Soft.com. Hi, I'm Mark Craighead, founder of Crossbreed Holsters. I designed our top-selling holster, the Super Tuck Deluxe, to solve the problems of being poked, pinched, and gouged while carrying concealed. The Super Tuck Deluxe is the most comfortable, most concealable holster on the market today. We offer a two-week free trial and a lifetime warranty. Visit us at CrossbreedHolsters.com. Don't forget, CrossbreedHolsters.com. That's the sound of your door being kicked in by an intruder with a single kick. That's the sound of the same door now protected by the Door Sentinel at MySafeDoor.com. Go to MySafeDoor.com right now and watch the amazing video. At MySafeDoor.com, you'll learn how to turn your home into a fortress with the Door Sentinel. 16 kicks later... 
and the Door Sentinel is still holding strong. MySafeDoor.com. That's MySafeDoor.com. Storable foods, check. Water filters, check. Gold and silver, check. Tactical gear, check. What's missing from your survival checklist? An essential that should not be taken for granted. Storable vitamins and nutritional supplements. Since many foods do not contain the essential micronutrients your body needs, you need Survival RX, the world's first ultra-long-term storable vitamins and nutritional supplements. How long? Survival RX products have a shelf life of up to 30 years, thanks to triple nitrogen flushing for guaranteed freshness go to survivalrx.com for our complete product list including powdered milk and whey protein isolate and remember november is nuclear disaster preparedness month at survivalrx.com with every order until november 30th you will receive a free bottle of potassium iodate just enter coupon code radio go to survivalrx.com that's survival the letter r the letter x.com add survivalrx.com to your preparedness checklist today Hey everybody, Alex Jones here. If you're looking for the perfect Christmas gift, listen up. This will make your holiday shopping very easy. This year, give a seed bank from one of our oldest sponsors, Solutions from Science, to your friends and family. Here's why. The Survival Seed Bank will give any friend or loved one the ability to grow a full acre crisis garden of nutritionally dense, life-sustaining food. And the Survival Seed Bank is not just a box of open-pollinated seeds. It's an indestructible, waterproof seed bank that can even be buried if we face a real meltdown. And here's the best part. All the seeds in the Survival Seed Bank go through strict germination testing so you can be confident you're not buying old seeds. Give a Survival Seed Bank this Christmas by going to survivalseedbank.com. That's survivalseedbank.com. Or you can call 877-327-0365 to give the gift that produces an ongoing supply of life-sustaining food. couple of more segments to spend with Mac Maloney. The book is called UFOs in Wartime. And we're covering the wars. We only have a short amount of time left. Let's go to the Vietnam War. A couple of highlights, please. Yeah, we have a question, Gene, from Ward. And he said, I heard a long time ago that in Vietnam, the Viet Cong never had any helicopters. So when the term enemy helicopters was used during that time period, it was really a code word for UFOs. Have you, uh, Mac, have you ever heard anything about that? Yes, uh, he's right. Um, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong never flew helicopters during the Vietnam War, or at least they didn't flo- fly any helicopters below the DMZ, which was the demarcation line between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. So what would happen is, just like back in the um, World War II, where you know, unidentified aerial objects were seen, and they they were just called misguided rockets and things of that nature. In Vietnam, the code word was enemy helicopters. But as he says, there were no enemy helicopters. And, and probably the best uh, episode that we can talk about uh, having to do with this was, is the Hobart incident. Um, I'm not sure how many people know about this, but basically what happened was in, in, in the summer of 1968, um, uh, there were a lot of uh, U.S. troops right up on the DMZ, looking across the DMZ into virtually into North Vietnam, and and 
they started seeing strange lights in the sky. Um, they the the code word was instituted again. Uh, you know, enemy helicopters, but. Uh, of course, the U.S. military knew they weren't enemy helicopters, so they rushed a lot of anti-aircraft missiles, radar, and, um, and, and jets up to the northern part of South Vietnam uh, during this time period. And what happened was um, uh, the next night or a few nights later, these strange lights were seen again, and they scrambled uh, F-4 uh, Phantoms and uh, went up to chase these lights. And at the same time, uh, because of this kind of high tension at the time, the, the U.S. military had asked for all available warships to patrol right off the coast of the DMZ, and that included uh, some of our allies, and that included this um, Australian uh, destroyer called the HMAS Hobart. So, so now what we have is we have F-4 Phantoms flying around at night chasing these strange lights that no one knows what they are. Uh, the strange lights fly over the DMZ and then go out over the Gulf of Tonkin. And at some point during that uh, time period, the uh, F-4 Phantoms shot at these lights. Uh, the tragic thing was was that uh, what happened was the uh, air-to-air missiles didn't hit the lights. They hit the Hobart, and they killed three Australian soldiers. The Hobart started firing back at the F-4s, and no one knew what was going on really until uh, the next morning, and then they realized that that in shooting up the strange lights, the uh, enemy helicopters, uh, the uh, Air Force Phantoms had actually um, unknowingly attacked this, uh, this this Australian destroyer and killed three sailors, uh, uh, the the uh, and, and wounded a lot of them. And the U.S. military took a lot of the wounded off of the destroyer, brought them to Vietnam, and treated them. Uh, and and the and the destroyer was a mess. It was it had been hit by at least three air rockets. And uh, it had to retire, and, and it went back to Australia to be refitted. Um, years later, it was actually sunk to be a, um, a, a an artificial reef, uh, but really kind of a tragic story. Um, and it all had to do with, with one night, U.S. fighters chasing UFOs over the DMZ. Military intelligence, Mac. It's an oxymoron. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, do you think that there's something to that case? Do you think possibly the telemetry or the targeting data – or, or routines uh, with the air-to-air rockets were somehow manipulated by these objects to, to attack the Hobart? Well, you know, there's, you make a good point because it's, it's very hard for a air-to-air rocket. They were, they were Sidewinder missiles. And um, it, it would be very hard for them to hit a ship, frankly. Uh, you know, you're, you're flying at least a couple miles um, in altitude. Uh, you're firing at a specific target. And after a while, uh, the Sidewinder, if it doesn't find its target, it, it, it runs well, out of Well, chances are it's going to find you before it finds a ship all the way down on the deck, you know? Right. I, I, I just bring that up because there is, there is a curious element there. And, of course, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin brings up another uh, very curious, almost paranormal event that uh, got us into the Vietnam War, which I, I don't want to digress. We don't have enough time. But it seems that there are crucial... UFOs show up at crucial times within the within the process, and uh, and this may have been a shot across our bow uh, in terms of, hey, you try to attack us, look what can happen to you. Well, I, I'm you know, just I'm just putting that out there. Um, so where do we go from here? I mean, we have a couple of more uh, interesting uh, time for a couple of more interesting Vietnam accounts. Uh, how about the the Viet Cong uh, actually having the North Vietnamese having their problems with UFOs? Right. There was a story um, about um, 
a marine marine patrol went into uh, there was a there was a notorious place in Vietnam called the I Drang Valley, which saw a lot of fighting uh, during the Vietnam War. I, I, I'm sorry, the Ashaw Valley. They did a whole Mel Gibson movie. Uh, we were soldiers about mm-hmm. the first uh, battle there. So what what the Marines used to do is that they would they would go into uh, this area and they would set up uh, ambush. Um, spots where they knew the North Vietnamese were going to come down a certain trail or whatever, and they would try to ambush them. So on this particular night, um, they, were in the, they were in their ambush uh, mode, and um, no North Vietnamese showed up. So morning came, and now the Marines are going to go back to their base. Uh, they're, they're going back to their base, and they come to a clearing, and all of a sudden they see a UFO overhead, you know, standard flying saucer, very bright. There it is, right above the jungle canopy. The Marines are kind of mesmerized by it, and all of a sudden they hear a gunfire, and it turns out that there were North Vietnamese or Vietnam, or Viet Cong soldiers nearby, and they started firing at this thing. And, um, uh, uh, you know, and, the, and the, so the Marines basically witnessed this gun battle between uh, communist troops and, and uh, UFO, and uh, this included they were firing machine guns at it, rocket-propelled grenades, the works. And eventually, uh, either the Vietnamese, uh, the communists ran out of ammunition or whatever, but the uh, UFO accelerated and took off. The Marines, you know, hightailed it back to their base. Uh, they were debriefed. Of course, their superiors said, don't ever mention the incident to anybody. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's good research. Uh, I'd never heard that one. Good job on that one. What about this really cool incident where we have that uh, curious uh, effect of a UFO, you know, killing electrical processes and stopping machinery, that sort of thing. There's a really good case, I think, from 66 that you mentioned about a UFO showing up and shutting everything down. Why don't you tell us about that one real quick? Right. Um, What it was was uh, in 1966, as you say, uh, there's a huge base at Nai Trang, um, which is about the midlands of uh, South Vietnam, right on the coast. And um, one night, a lot of the soldiers that had gathered to watch a movie, they had just got an outdoor generator, and now they had electricity to run a movie projector. So there was there was several thousand GIs there watching a movie. In another part of the base, there were uh, Sky Ra- A1 Sky Raider uh, attack planes getting ready to take off. In another part of the base, there were bulldozers, who were, you know, bulldozing a new road. And in the middle of the night, actually halfway through this movie, this light appeared above the base, and people thought it was flares because at night uh, there would be a lot of flare activity between the U.S. and communist forces. But this light was so bright and came right down on top of the base, and, and people didn't know what was going on. And as this happened, all the electricity in the base just stopped. The movie projector stopped. The airplanes couldn't take off. The bulldozers were stalled. Uh, the light hung there for quite a while, and then it, it, it disappeared. It's probably um, the one UFO instance in Vietnam that had the largest number of witnesses. We know it's extremely difficult to make a buck these days. So we're offering a special opportunity for you to work part-time or full-time for the Paracast, the Tech Night Owl Live, and our famous technology commentary site, technightowl.com. If you have a background in online sales and marketing, and if you're ready to make great things happen with our company, please email your resume and your references. Write to us, news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. Maybe you can become a member of our team. I'll tell you what, there's a lot more to come in our final segment with Mac Maloney. With Gene and Chris, you're in the Paracast. 
Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network. You expect professional service from your doctor, your accountant, and even the girl who takes your morning coffee order. Why not from your domain registrar, too? Namecheap.com provides stellar service with no sneaky upselling. We offer more features and security options for your website than there are ways to order a latte. And new domains come with a WhoisGuard to protect your personal info. At Namecheap.com, you can get your domain for as low as $2.99. Now is a great time to get to know Namecheap.com. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hey, folks, this is Crazy Melvin for eFoods Direct, and I'm slashing prices to get you the best deals on your food supply. Call now and save, save, save on a 25-year food supply that can save your life when disaster strikes because it will strike and it will smack you right upside the head. So keep... Wait a minute, Melvin. I know eFoods Direct and they're not full of hype like you. eFoods Direct goes to great lengths to ensure you get the best ingredients full of nutrition and flavor. They are the real deal. Melvin, you're right about one thing, though. For Black Friday weekend, eFoods will save you 30% off anything on their website at eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. Now that's a deal with no hype. Call 800-409-5633 or go to eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex and save 30% off your entire order. This deal only lasts through Monday, November 28th. So call now. Call 800-409-5633 or go to eFoodsDirect.com slash Alex. Remember, 30% off this Black Friday weekend. Leave the hype to crazy Melvin because you can bet your life on eFoods Direct. What nutrition are you missing that's leading to the four major diseases? Cancer, arthritis, heart disease, and Parkinson's. There are at least 80,000 medical studies that show a lack of the protein glutathione to be linked to cancer, heart disease, Parkinson's, macular degeneration, lung disease, digestive diseases, diabetes, Alzheimer's, ALS, rheumatoid arthritis, and lupus. In all, at least 68 diseases. What is the number one food by which your body is most empowered to increase its glutathione production? It is undamaged whey protein from grass-fed cows. One World Whey is truly the first undamaged whey protein. All other whey protein powders are damaged by heat, chemicals, and filtration. One World Whey is the most life-giving whey protein powder ever produced. Call 888-988-3325. That's 888-988-3325. Or visit OneWorldWay.com. That's OneWorldWhey.com. If you owe money to the IRS, you can't make the problem go away by yourself. But with the help of Dan Pilla, you can get your problem solved once and for all. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. For 30 years, I've helped thousands of people solve their tax debt problem, and I can help you solve yours, too. We take a very simple but proven three-step approach to solving your problem. First, we stabilize IRS collection actions so you don't have to worry about the IRS seizing your bank account or paycheck. Next, we build a comprehensive plan to get your tax debt reduced to the fullest extent possible, sometimes even completely eliminated. And finally, we work with you every step of the way to get your problem solved once and for all. Call us for a free consultation. Call 1-800-346-6829. We'll work together to get your problem solved guaranteed. Dan Pilla has been protecting taxpayers from the IRS for three decades, and he can help you too. Call us today at 800 800- 
800-34-6829. That's 800-34-NO-TAX. Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the Paracast. So we're running out of wars? No, we have the first Gulf War. And the book is UFOs in Wartime by Mac Maloney with Gene and Chris and the Paracast. And there's something here which hits my eye about something called the Stargate. Of course, fodder for a motion picture, a series of TV shows. Mac, what are we talking about? What about the Stargate and Saddam Hussein? Well, this is an interesting story that I came upon, and, and it, it, it really ends the book. Um, what happened was, it's, it's actually two incidents. Uh, I kept coming upon stories that during the first Gulf War, so in 1991, that U.S. fighters shot down a UFO. And, and the story is, is basically four F-16s were on their way to Baghdad on a bombing mission. Uh, they spotted UFO. One um, flew off in pursuit of it. The UFO fired at it. It fired at the UFO, shot the UFO down. The UFO crashed in the Saudi Arabian desert. People saw the wreckage. People also saw the U.S. Army packing it up and allegedly shipping it back to the U.S. Later on, between the first Gulf War and let's call the second Gulf War, there was this war of attrition where the U.S. was bombing uh, Saddam Hussein's aircraft, uh, anti-aircraft batteries. There was a no-fly zone all, over all of Iraq. And during this time, there was another story that said that Iraqi forces shot down a UFO during this time period and that they took the, uh, the the remains of the UFO and maybe the crew back to what was basically Iraq's Saddam Hussein's Area 51 and that he had scientists reverse engineer things that they found in this UFO. Now, the odd thing is, is that there are some people who think that that was the WMD that we were looking for in the second war. We didn't find any nuclear weapons. We didn't find any evidence of his chemical weapons. And there's a lot of evidence to say that, that those two programs he had closed down a long time before. So people say, well, why stop this well? What's the WMD? Yeah, what do you think Yo- about that, Gene? I don't know. They never discovered the WMD and were kind of living in that belief. So I don't know. Is this it? That's a good question. I, I don't know either. I mean, do you go to war over something like that? But let's face it. They said they were looking for WMD. I mean, there was no nuclear or chemical WMD found. So what were they looking for? Exactly. And uh, that also brings up the other wrinkle in this particular story that I've followed uh, over the years. Of course, you know, a lot of this stuff's on the Internet. Um, it's very difficult to really track down original sources, that sort of thing. But... There were also rumors in the more fantastic version of the story that Saddam Hussein had discovered some sort of ancient stargate there and uh, that that was also part of the whole scenario of going into Iraq. Uh, What has your research uncovered on that? Well, I didn't really come upon a lot of information on that, but I will say this is, as we all know, where Iraq is today is is really the cradle of civilization. The first city was in Iraq. It was called Ur. Well, I haven't done very much research on that, but um, I think, as we all know, that, that where Iraq is today is considered the cradle of civilization. That's where civilization more or less, more or less started. So if there was going to be a Stargate somewhere, it probably would be there. 
Okay, then when we talk about Stargate, do we think of what we see in the movies, which is some kind of transport device to take you elsewhere? It would be nice to think of it that way. I think it would be great. If, if we were to come upon some kind of technology like that, whether it's something left over from thousands of years ago or something that someone could invent now, uh, think of the possibilities of something like that. Think of what, how the human race would change. So do you think it's possible that the Iraqis may have actually stumbled on something akin to some kind of ancient technology, but maybe didn't have the time to develop uh, the capabilities? And do you think that that would be uh, a good pretext to, to go to war? Of course, a third of the world's oil is also pretty hefty motivation. But uh, do you think there's anything to that? I, I have found some interesting um, – I don't know, equivocal information about this whole idea, this whole concept. But uh, where do you come down on ancient technology possibly uh, existing and even potentially surviving to the modern age that has, you know, high exalted capabilities? Where do you come down on that? I think it's possible. I think that there was some kind of a civilization on this earth millions and millions of years ago, and, and we just can't find it. Uh, uh, the evidence of it is has been wiped clean. Or maybe there wasn't as many people involved in it as as there are number of people on Earth now. But, uh, you know, I think that there's a possibility that something like that, you know, is true because there is fleeting glimpses of evidence of things like that. And like I say, if, it, if it's going to show up anywhere, it's going to show up in Mesopotamia because that's where, you know, the cradle of civilization was. That's where we all came from, um, you know, as, as modern human beings. So, I have my fingers crossed that someday someone will find something like that because I think a whole new era of, of human civilization would begin. Well, we're getting very close. We're getting very close. Okay, so was that the only, as they say, outside possibility for the Gulf War and UFOs? Anything else to mention before we close it out? There were a couple incidents yeah. where uh, sure. right before okay, the first right Gulf War – as um, they were getting ready to go to war, there was n- a number of uh, episodes that we bring out in the book where people were seeing very strange things flying over the area, over the entire Middle East. Um, there were uh, reports that um, U.S. Navy ships uh, fired on a UFO right before the war started. It, you know, once again, it just it just goes right to the point where it just seems that when we're about to go to war or we are at war, the number of UFO sightings uh, spikes, and and I think that's interesting. I'd like to know why, um, but uh, that's the whole premise of the book, and and I think that we present a lot of evidence to at least get people thinking what is going on here. Where do you take it from here? Are you going to write a sequel, or do you think this is the best effort you could put forth in terms of your entry into UFO investigations? Yeah, I, I think... I think this is going to be it, to tell you the truth. I could change, you know, that could change tomorrow. But, uh, you know, we put a lot of time into it. We we did a lot of research. And as I say in the book, we we scraped the surface. But the thing is, is that for people to read the book, you know, I urge them to, if, if there's a particular episode that really sparks your interest, go and look at the research of people like this. Yeah, yeah, help help out. You know, be part right. of the solution. Right, exactly. You know, and another thing, too, I should say is that, you know, once again, I'm a writer. I'm more of a reporter. I'm not a UFO researcher. And my hat's off to people like you and the people that I talk to because you're the people who are keeping this thing going. And someday it will be solved. Someday the puzzle will be solved. And, and, and you people will be the heroes. Data will overwhelm the mystery. Well, you, you, you 
have kept this going. I mean, there were people years ago who said the world was flat, and then there were people who said, no, it's round. And the people who said it was round were right. Um, but they just stuck to it. And, and that's why I really, uh, I really admire people uh, who, like, who do this on a daily basis. Uh, my hat is really off to you people. Oh, thank you. And uh, uh, thanks uh, for Gene, too, because I'll tell you, talk about a guy that's been in the trenches for a long time in this whole thing, right, Mr. Dinosaur? I am a dinosaur. I resemble that <laughs> remark. I've been doing it for 81 million years. There you I go. remember a place called Terra Nova. Oh, I had chased those dinosaurs. And people said, no, you're a dinosaur. And I said, I'm not that big. You know, I don't have four arms. I'm not one of those creatures that bites your neck, but I could be a vampire. You never know. Mac Maloney, tell our listeners where they could get more information about what you do, not just this book, but your others. Well, they can go to MacMaloney.com. Um, it has a list of all the books I've done and, and just other stuff that we've done. Uh, we're, we're working on a site now, UFOsandWatertime.com, that people will be able to go to. We're going to have a lot of information there. Uh, the book comes out December 6th. It'll be in all bookstores everywhere December 6th, but you can pre-order it on uh, Amazon.com, and it's it's going to be you know in paper, but also of course you know in digital form. If it's on digital form, you know you can't be part of the future. Speaking of part of the future, what have you got going on, Chris O'Brien? Well, I'm uh, headed off to Tennessee for a conference. Uh, then about a month later, I'm going to be off uh, out in the Southern California area doing a speaking tour there. And, uh, of course, you can always catch me at forum.theparacast.com. I also have a, a website, Gene, called Our Strange Planet, My Eternal Work in Progress. So, neighbors, if you have a comment or a question about the Paracast, you know where to send it, news at theparacast.com. Once again, that's news at theparacast.com. We promise to read each and every message, Chris and I, and we'll try to answer most of them. And, by the way, if you do want to join... Our team, you have a background in sales, especially online sales, and broadcast experience as a salesperson is a must. Do write us, news at thepowercast.com. Once again, that's news at thepowercast.com. Special thank you this week to Mac Maloney. Mac, thanks for joining us this week on The Powercast. Thanks, guys. The Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg and Christopher O'Brien, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. <laughs>